how many fantasy teams is too many fantasy teams? And what do we make of some of the pitchers who surged in this year's second half? I'll ask Mike Gianella and Paul Sporer about those topics and a whole lot more next on the final regular season edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September 23rd. It's show number 37 and the final regular season show of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full doubleheader edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus, discussing how many fantasy baseball teams is enough, how he figured out which fantasy teams to drop, and about managing risk in roster management, and he'll have his boons and banes for 2023. And later we'll have our second feature interview with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast, discussing surging second-half pitchers, the saves versus holds debate, and his boons and banes for 2023. We'll also have our usual great content from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including bad news in St. Louis for Tyler O'Neill and Nolan Gorman, bad news in Cincinnati for Nick Senzel, and more National League news. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including changes in the Baltimore lineup, the end of the 2022 line for Sonny Gray, and another sighting of Jared Kellenick. We'll also have our regular commentaries in the frequent flyer. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at St. Louis outfielder Jordan Walker. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about the 2022 and 2023 seasons for Baseball HQ Radio. It's another big Friday full doubleheader edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's our last regular season pod. We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, this is the last edition of the regular season of Baseball HQ Radio. We actually did have another edition planned for next Friday, but I got called in for my five-yearly colonoscopy next Friday, and having been there, done that before, I can guarantee you that coming back from the hospital after 40 hours or so of fasting and the procedure itself, recording and producing a podcast comes in a poor second for share of mind to just getting something to eat. And while I'm talking about it, I'll make a pitch for you to think about looking into a colonoscopy yourself, especially if anyone in your immediate family has ever had colon cancer. My dad had it twice, and it was only because of colonoscopies and early detection that he lived on well into his 80s. I worked with a guy whose dad and older brother had had colon cancer, but he didn't like the idea of getting a colonoscopy. He used to joke that for all the good it would do, they might as well shove that scope up his ass. Well, the joke was on him. By the time they found his cancer, it was in stage four, and he died two months later. He was 45 years old. So please, talk to your doctor. So enough of this palaver. Let's get our last regular season show on the road with our first feature expert interview with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. Mike, welcome back to the show. It's been a while. Hey, how you doing, Patrick? Good to be back. 
I'm doing fine. Thanks. Appreciate the uh, time that you're taking to be on the show. This is our last show of the season, and it's always good to talk with you. Uh, we talked with you earlier this season, so uh, two times in a year is good. The three times would probably be better, but I'll take what I can get. Uh, ordinarily, Mike, I talk with our guests about their teams and how they're doing and so forth, and we're going to be talking about your teams and specifically how many teams is appropriate to run. So let's start in a little bit different of an angle. A couple of years ago, you were in the American League only tout league that I was in. And uh, because of a rules change, they said, we're not going to have any innings minimum. They didn't tell anybody. They just put it in the constitution. And being a good player, you read the constitution again before the league started. And you were the only guy in the whole draft that knew that there was no innings minimum. And you drafted a, an all reliever team. Basically, you just eschewed uh, starters and loaded up everywhere else. Before we go on, uh, how'd you do? You know, it's funny. I have to go back and look, but I think I finished fourth. Part of the reason I tried that is because it was the pandemic season. Um, so I thought, well, you know, I, I don't really have a lot to lose here. It's a shorter season. It was kind of a weird year anyway. Um, there, there was a lot of, you know, variance. Uh, but yeah, I finished third or fourth. And the thing that I noticed, though, is the pitching part of it worked fine. Like the pitching part worked perfectly. It was on offense where I had a couple injuries. In a full season, you could maybe like catch up, you know, on the injuries. You can pick people up. In a 60-game season, you know, one or two players get hurt and forget it. Like you're, you're not going to be able to do that. Um, so, so what I found out here is that the plan didn't work, but I, I thought it certainly could. Um, and yeah, you know, Doug Dennis of Baseball HQ, and you know, season's not over. I don't want to jinx Doug. You know, not knock on wood, but it it looks like it's going to. It's going to work for Doug Dennis this year for sure. Yeah, and one of the reasons is he's shifted a lot of the starting pitcher money into hitting and he managed to draft Aaron Judge. And I think Aaron Judge is going to be a difference maker in a lot of leagues. But in addition to all the other offensive power that he was able to amass because he was spending so much more money on it than everybody else, I think it was, he was over $200 on offense and, you know, 55 or something like that on his pitching staff, a couple of relievers, and then a whole bunch of like secondary relievers, just good for his ratios. And He's going to win all five categories on offense, like which is pretty amazing if you think about it. That's 75 points right there. And he's going to either win or finish second in ERA and whip, and he's going to win saves. So he's going to have a pretty good season despite taking ones in the wins and strikeouts category. And I think the part of the reason is that he got lucky, and I talked to him about it, and he acknowledges that he got lucky in that he didn't get any injuries on his offensive side as you did when you tried it. And that seems to make me think that one of the issues with a punting strategy in any format is it really narrows your margins. You don't have a whole lot of room to recover if anything untoward happens. A, a bad season by a guy, an injury, as you mentioned, all these kinds of things. If you're on a more balanced kind of format, you can always try to tweak and maybe make some runs in, this, in the categories where you're close. But if you lose a guy in a only league where there's no replacement, your margins are vanishingly thin. And he lucked into a year where he just didn't get any injuries or nothing that mattered. Yeah, I, I think that's part of it. Now, you know, just, just to back up to something, and I'd have to go back and, and look at what Doug did, but my plan was to spend about 220 on offense that year and, and about 40 on relief. And I think I wound up spending like 43 to 45. So, so part of the idea of the strategy is, you know, typically in that format where it's a 260 cap, 
most teams are spending about, I'd say, 175, 180 on offense, or, or that's about the average. So you're you're building in a bit of a buffer with that, with with the strategy, because you know if you think about it, if you're spending 220, right, and you're 40 dollars over everybody else, and one of your 20 dollar players gets hurt, you still theoretically are ahead of everyone else because you still have spent more on offense. And of course, everything, you know, fluctuates and, you know, you, you can spend, you know, 200 on offense and have $140 offense if you, you know, didn't, did everything wrong. But that's the idea. The idea is that because you're spending more in the category, you should come out ahead and you should have a buffer for one major injury, you know, maybe one and a half. So I, I think that's kind of the idea, but, but to your point, you're right. Like it, it's like anything else with a, you know, with a category, you know, strategy like that. I think where the risk is really interesting is on the pitching side, because yes, there, there's no innings requirement and that's what makes the reliever strategy so appealing. But the downside to it is that you can still have one or two awful relievers, particularly early on who blow up your ratios. And then it puts you in a weird position where it's like, well, do you go chase innings even though you weren't going to, or you just hope your relievers kind of, you know, come back and rally and eventually do the things you're supposed to do. I think what Doug was thinking in that regard, and and I'm pretty sure this is what most people who look at a, a very um, hitting heavy offensive split is if you're using relievers, they are the most fungible pieces in a fantasy baseball format. And if you have a bad week from a guy, he's the kind of, uh, position where you can just dump them and try somebody else because there's so many other guys in the pool and they move around their team context change you know a guy starts off as a you know a, a long man mop-up guy but he pitches well and the guy ahead of him doesn't and all of a sudden he's in the you know higher leverage mix and he's starting to pitch well and getting getting innings getting good innings and maybe even vulturing a win or two here or there whereas going back to the idea of uh, of hitters if you lose even a reasonably decent hitter in an only league format, especially there isn't a fungible replacement for him in the pool. And I think that's a um, strategic advantage for the team that tries it, that just that you can replace a bad pitcher way easier than you can replace a bad or injured hitter. Yeah. And I think that's particularly true with relievers because something I've noticed in even 15 team mix now, you know, it used to be, starting pitchers in a, in, in a mixed league in any mixed league, it's like, Oh, I, I can just get a guy and I can get a good guy. Uh, now I'm finding, and even in those deeper mixed leagues, the pitchers out there either stink or they're like Marco Gonzalez, where it's like, yeah, you know, his pitcher's useful, but he's low strikeouts. Um, there's a lot of, you know, volatility. He can have a good outing. He can have a bad outing. And I'm not knocking Marco Gonzalez. I'm just pointing out that that's one of the better, you know, types of starters available. Whereas you are correct with, with relief pitchers, there's so many out there, even in an only, you know, in some of this, and I think we might dive into this in a later topic is in every format. And even in, in tout AL, and I, I wrote about this uh, earlier this year, people are still carrying five or six starting pitchers per team in an only league when they probably should be carrying five a piece and maybe even four, uh, just because relievers are so much better, generally speaking, in area and whip. Um, yes, you're going to lose some strikeouts, but even wins. Wins are, are far more variable than they used to be. You know, starting pitchers get, I think, about 55% of the total wins in Major League Baseball, you know, whereas that used to be like 65, 70%. So that's an area where Doug has a lot of advantages that wouldn't have existed a few years ago if you tried this strategy. And I, I think he's done a great job of, of kind of maximizing or, or pulling all those levers to put himself in a position where, again, it looks like he's about to win. 
Yeah, he is going to win. I can't see anyway. He's ten or twelve points I, I, clear I'm of the just, field. I'm just trying to be cautious. I'm doing the whole, <laughs> yeah. you know, don't jinx a friend thing. But I, I think you're probably right. I mean, I'm I'm up, you know, about twenty points in my well, sixteen and a half now in my tout, and I'm I'm still saying, well, you know, you never know. But yes, I I get it. <laughs> yeah, he's he's highly likely to win in that league. I started the season with six starters and three relievers and all three relievers were guys I hoped would become closers because I didn't want to spend money at draft as a strategic matter. I just didn't want to spend money on closers because it it was either going to be $22 for a Romano or a Liam Hendricks, or it was going to be $14 for, you know, a Gregory Soto or somebody like that. And I just found those unappealing on both sides. So I thought, well, grab John Duran, you know, and guys like that because uh, they're in pretty good situations to inherit the save should something go astray for their uh, for the anointed closer. And in fact, in Minnesota, that is what happened. But then they traded and acquired Jorge Lopez, and now Duran's back getting saves. But I was falling behind with all those bad starters. I wasn't getting wins or strikeouts because they were leaving games in the fourth inning or uh, third inning sometimes and getting hammered most of the time. And I switched to a three-starter, six-reliever approach about six weeks ago, and I've moved up, I'm going to guess, a combined 10 points in ERA and whip, and I haven't lost ground in wins, amazingly enough. My starters have been getting me wins, which is good, but my relief pitchers are getting me wins as well, and I think the figure now is that relievers are now accounting for more than half of wins in the major leagues, and I think that's just going to increase as time goes on and as major league teams realize that the the optimal way for them to use pitchers is to throw their good starters lots and throw everybody else not so much. Yes, although there, you know, one one challenge with that strategy in Major League Baseball is that it's a struggle in terms of optimization, and for for a couple of reasons. You know, one is like just from game to game, you don't want to blow out your bullpen. Um, I know it sounds paradoxical with teams having so many relievers. But relievers now throw max effort or near max effort on every pitch, whereas, you know, when we were younger, they didn't do that. And you had a lot of junk ballers. You had a lot of relievers who were not designed to do that or or multi-inning relievers. And I think the second thing is you're going to see this in the postseason. Teams that rely heavily on relievers, they need those relievers in October. And if you just keep going to them and going to them and going to them, you're going to have a tired bullpen down the stretch. So it's, or you know, in the postseason. So it, it's a balancing act. I, I think you're right. I think the trend is moving that way. I think at some point, though, there is a logical stopping point where you still are going to want, you know, four to five innings from your starting pitchers. And even this year, this year, the average number of innings a starter has thrown for the first time in years ticked up slightly, which tells me that we're we we've sort of reached the bottom. And, and it could, if it drops more. It either means that rosters will have to expand again, there'll have to be more pitchers on the roster and more relievers, or there'll have to be some kind of change in philosophy where those multi-inning relievers who throw, you know, don't throw as hard, don't give as much effort return. I saw that stat that the starting pitcher innings had ticked up this season, and I didn't have a chance to look into it in any depth, but I wonder if it's because they're the teams are using fewer starters. They're doing these openers, which I don't think counts when they calculate starter innings. And so the only guys who get to actually be starters are the better starters. And the, the it's the marginal guys who are losing their innings in favor of moving into relief or being replaced by relievers. And I wonder if the amount of starter innings is going up because the amount of starters is going down. Yeah, I haven't looked at that. I, I think that could be a possibility. I will say the opener, I did look at openers and 
like they're still out there, but it's not nearly as I don't know if I want to use the word trendy, but it's not nearly as prevalent as it was at its peak. Like, I don't know if it's three or four years ago. So the openers aren't driving it as much as, as you might think, but you might be right about the other piece of that. It might be that, you know, the best starters are, you know, like Sandy Alcantara, for example, are going even deeper. I think Aaron Knoll is another one. And then there's a whole, you know, group below who are, are throwing fewer innings. That, that's an interesting thing for me to look at in the winter and, and kind of kind of analyze. Yeah, it is interesting, and it's going to have real profound implications later on. I wonder, on that same topic, Mike, the Major League Baseball has instituted some changes that are going to start taking effect next year, and I wonder if you think any of the pitching-related changes are going to have an effect on the reliever usage in particular, and I'm thinking primarily of the pitch clock, where they have to, you know, ordinarily or right now the really hard throwers are taking 30 35 seconds just to recover from the previous max effort pitch to throw another max effort pitch it's like lifting weights in the in a weight room you don't just you don't just max your reps over and over and over again because you're worried about breaking down and if they say all of a sudden okay you guys who are throwing a pitch every 35 seconds get it down to 20 so you're throwing twice as many pitches or more or less in the same amount of time and i wonder if that's going to have an effect on how useful those guys are in fantasy and in real baseball because they just can't max out the way that they're currently being asked to max out in every appearance. Yeah, it's a it's a tough question to answer. And you know, I heard on Eno Saris and Derek Van Riper talking about this on on Rates and Barrels, you know, their podcast that was a week or a couple of weeks ago. And it, it is they, they they came to that conclusion as well, which is well, you know, the starting pitchers, most of them there'll be some impact, but we're talking about a couple seconds here and there. Um, it's it's a specific group of relievers who throw really hard. You know, I think I think Devin Williams was one who was identified, and, and there are a couple others who are taking a long time between pitches. Uh, you know, I think one of two things will happen. I, well, I think a few things will happen. One, I, I don't think Williams is going to stop trying to throw hard. I just think he might have a shorter pitch count, or they might not rely on him to you know throw twenty five or thirty pitches. They might just be like, to your point, okay, now you're throwing fifteen pitches. And there might be longer breaks for him between games. But I think, too, on the margins, you're going to see more relievers. And the Brewers are a good example of this. The Brewers have relievers where if they don't throw hard, I think Brent Suter's an example of this. It's like, okay, we know you don't throw hard. So just go out there and keep throwing you know, quickly, like work fast. There is an advantage to working fast, and it's something that's been lost in, in the game as we see it now. But when you're just in there and you're in a rhythm and you're throwing, you know, over and over and you're hitting your spots, velocity is important. I know people have been saying this for years. Velocity isn't necessarily the most important thing, though. I'm not saying these changes won't help the hitters, but I, I think it's kind of overstated. I, I have a suspicion that, you know, a good pitcher who hit, you know, has good location, has good separation between his fastball and his off-speed stuff, regardless of you know, how hard he's throwing, is still going to have some success. So. All of this seems to me it's going to help the hitters somewhat in terms of the pitch clock, particularly at the beginning as pitchers adjust. I I think eventually, though, it's still going to balance out more toward pitchers. I think even with some of what we're taking away from pitchers, they've really kind of the advantage has kind of been tilting for them so much the last few years that this change won't bring it all the way back. 
When you said that, it reminded me that Toronto has a guy, Adam Simber, who is not a velocity guy. He's not dominating hitters. He's just fooling them with that weird underhand delivery, and and his pitches rise when they should uh, sink and vice versa because of the delivery. And he pitches at a fairly quick pace, and I wonder if there's going to be something that we need to be aware of for fantasy draft purposes that relief pitchers who already had a fairly high cadence might be a little more attractive because they're if they're used to it, they may stay in games longer. You know, every out they get, in addition to the ones that normal relievers get, is another opportunity to get a win, if nothing else, but also to improve their ratios on a larger inning base. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just one of those like things that that's kind of again, it's really hard to to say. I, I I think what I'm curious about is to see if strikeouts, particularly strikeouts for relievers, drop. Um, it might not have the biggest effect on fantasy because outside of closers, we we don't roster a lot of middle relievers, particularly outside of um, only leagues. But in terms of how it affects the rest of the game, that, that's what I'm, you know, interested to see and how you know that impacts a hitter who, you know, might have been striking out at thirty percent rate before. If that drops, particularly at the end of the game, because he's facing, you know, fewer hard throwers, you know, just time and time again, where you know he's just completely overmatched as a hitter. On the other hand, if you could find yourself a handful of relievers who go from pitching an inning and a third or, or just one inning and go up to you know two innings or two and a third with really good ratios and decent uh, chances of getting wins, all of a sudden the Venn diagram of them and fifth and sixth starters starts to look pretty overlapped. And of the two, you'd probably rather have the relievers with the low ratios than the sixth starter who has, you know, a 140 whip and a 490 ERA. And even in mixed leagues, that opportunity might be, you know, instead of rostering another fifth or sixth starter just to get starters in my lineup, I might be more interested in the Adam Simbers of the world and guys like that who, who under the new rules may be getting a few more innings without really hurting their ratios that much. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I mean, you, you probably played long enough. I, I remember like, you know, reliever like, like uh, Keith Folk, you know, throwing like, like one year he threw like 90, 100 innings. I, I don't think we're going to see that, but we could see an increase in innings to the point where suddenly some of these relievers, if they're throwing like 80 innings instead of 70 or 65, uh, become quite attractive, particularly in deeper leagues. I can see relievers going back up to 90 innings. I don't, I don't think that's a, a stretch of the imagination because if, if you think about over 26 weeks, it's still only three and a half innings a week. And maybe they do it in, have to do it in two widely separated appearances, you know, two innings today and an inning and then two thirds on Friday or whatever. Well, I guess Friday, this is Friday. So uh, Friday and Tuesday say they, they, they do that. And there might be an opportunity there. And especially in the first year or two of it, it might be an opportunity that a lot of your league competitors don't realize that it might be a, a little bit of a drafting advantage in, uh, even in 15 team mixed leagues or I don't think 12-team mixed leagues because there's not the pressure on your pitching. But in a 15-team mixed, I can see it uh, being interesting. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. And Mike, earlier this month at the site, you wrote an interesting article about how many leagues is enough leagues. What prompted you to investigate this idea? Well, interestingly enough, the the idea didn't start from that. I, I think the genesis of the idea had more to do with kind of looking at managing time and, and, you know, finding the ability to manage your teams. Well, it, 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 it wasn't originally idea of like, Oh, you know, let, let's start with the premise of is 15 leagues too much, you know, is three leagues too little, or is that the sweet spot? 
it was looking more at how I how you know, I'm doing pretty well this year, and you know thinking about how why that was, and it came in came down to well, you know I've, I've cut down some leagues that I, I was in, and it, it's improved my process on the whole. How has it improved your process? Well, you know, for one thing, I'm I'm not playing in formats that I'm less familiar with, or I'm playing in in fewer formats, so I'm I'm not shifting back and forth to like, okay, I'm in a points league over here, or I'm in a league with you know super deep reserve lists and over here. So it eliminates kind of some work that I was doing, where all the work I'm doing, even if the leagues have somewhat different rules, are, are tied into the same goals and and more of the same skill sets. So if I'm looking up a player and doing research, it's like, okay, this research works for me for the most part across the board. Yes. Each league has different, you know, things that are going on. Maybe I'm low in steals in one league. Maybe I'm low in saves in the other, but on the whole, it, it kind of allows me to focus from a player analysis standpoint and not be like, Oh great. Well, in these three leagues, this player is great for me, but in these, you know, three leagues over here, I'm kind of wasting my time even thinking about him. Right. And you mentioned earlier that there are such significant differences from league to league as far as reserve lists and injured lists and all of those kind of things that a player who in one league who's attractive because you can stash him for an unlimited amount of time on an injured list till he gets back in versus a league where you only have four reserve spots and no IL and if you stash him it really creates a huge opportunity cost so there are those factors for sure and it's good to eliminate them I think you're right about that you said in the article that the advance of technology has had a pretty tremendous advantages in forming leagues because you can find uh, other fantasy players, other fans pretty easily online through Twitter or what have you. And that's a lot easier than finding 11 guys in your neighborhood or friends or friends and friends and of acquaintances and stuff like that. But right after saying that you said it's great, except when it isn't, which I thought was great. What did you mean? Well, you know, it's it's great to be invited places, right? Like we we all want to be liked, you know, we all want to be social. Um, but but I think what eventually, and, and you know, I was in terms of fantasy baseball, what I point out in the article, I, I was writing a blog back then. This is before I was. This is back in two thousand seven. This is before baseball prospectus. I wanted to be recognized, so I, I kept accepting invitation after invitation to leagues because it was like, well, this is a great way to get myself out there. And it was a great way to, you know, rub elbows, frankly, with people like you and, you know, people like Doug Dennis and, you know, many, many others in, you know, this industry or, or game that we play. Uh, eventually, it just became too much. Like, it became like, I'm on Twitter, I have access to thousands of people, I, I have people in, who I don't even know inviting me to leagues. I hate saying no, like people weren't inviting me to these leagues to, you know, make my life difficult or, or make me feel overwhelmed. But that's what was happening. I, I just felt very overwhelmed with the number of leagues I was in. And I have an Excel spreadsheet. I still have it where, you know, each league I have my roster and I kind of look at it and I spend time, you know, examining it. It went from being something where, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, I have an idea about this one league I'm in and this player, this trade. And I had the idea because my brain wasn't full with, you know, 10 or 12 leagues where every Friday I'm just going through them like a chore where it's like, okay, well, let's look at this team. Who do I need to pick up? Who's on the IL? You know, let's look at this team. Who do I need to pick up? Who's on the IL? And when that happens, stuff falls through the cracks because if, if you're looking at so many teams, you might miss a player who isn't performing or he, there's a bad trend or maybe even a minor injury where you're, you're not even you know plugged into it because you've got too much going on. 
And that's not even accounting for changes in our lives where we, you know, you go from being a single guy playing these things as more or less your sole hobby. And then all of a sudden you've got, you know, kids to get to school or take to hockey practice or whatever. And all of those other kind of things, your own actual job gets, usually gets more involved as you get more senior and those kinds of things. So there definitely is a, a time question that falls into it. I remember when you said that thing about the, uh, about having your spreadsheet, I built a spreadsheet too, and I was playing in multiple leagues. And it was quite ornate in that, you know, it managed to automate the data download to get the, all the free agents that were available and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, man, I'm saving myself a ton of time, except the spreadsheet got so long and involved and complicated that I found myself, whatever time I was gaining and not managing my teams, I was losing because I had to manage the spreadsheet because it was constantly breaking. And, you know, th- there'd be some glitch that arose because of the data import would in, you know, it would get an extra space at the end of everybody's name and all the, all the data table lookups would fail and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So it turned out to be kind of a fool's errand. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that's, that's some of it. I, I, I like I said, for me, I, I kind of miss, and I alluded to this in the article, I'm never going to go back to one or two leagues, but I kind of miss that where you're in a league and you actually spend time like just idly thinking about your league and thinking, oh, you know, I've got these players on this team or on these two teams. And then having a moment where it's like, hmm, you know, maybe I'll go look at, you know, Pat Patrick's team and see if there's a trade that can be made. I still do that once in a while, but I, I'm so between life, like you said, and everything else, I'm just so busy and, and so stretched thin that I sometimes I don't consider that the way I used to. Like I'm not as thoughtful or mindful about my teams. Over time, you said you amassed more double-digit teams in what you came to think of as your portfolios, and you realized that using the term portfolio to describe your hobby was indicative of the problem. So what was the problem with the term portfolio? Well, you know, it's portfolio. Usually it's like a a financial term. I mean, sometimes people talk about like, you know, photos or photographs, but I I think portfolio to me sounds like a business, right? Like where, where it's like, I'm in the business of fantasy baseball. And we, we even hear that term, you know, people sometimes call what we're doing an industry. And, and I think it's kind of funny because it certainly is an industry. And I know people make, make a lot of money off of it, but it should also be fun. And I, I, I feel that that mentality of having a portfolio was speaking to, to what I felt was a problem personally, which is it, it went from being fun to feeling like a business or a job or, or a grind. And, and I gotta be honest, like before this year, and it wasn't all having, you know, as many teams, I think so it was the pandemic, but bef- the last two or three years, I'd say from 2019 until last year, I was really starting to feel the grind of it more than the, the fun of it. I thought when I read that, I thought that's exactly right. You know, I have a stock portfolio of, of investments that I'm managing in my retirement and it's not something I do because I think it's fun necessarily. And I started thinking, yeah, if you're, if you're treating your hobby as something in which you have a portfolio, it's probably becoming maybe a bit too much of a business. Uh, you cut back to six and a half teams. You have six teams you manage on your own and one that you share with a partner. And you said for you, that was the sweet spot. What made six and a half the optimum number? Well, I, I don't know if it's really, you know, it's something I point out at the end is for everybody, it's different. Uh, but for me, I think it worked because um, it's not just the number of leagues. It's the idea that they all have weekly transactions for the most part. You know, I don't, you know, Tautworth is the daily activation rule, but most of them are, are weekly in terms of the fab. So they all were, you know, cycled together. As I mentioned before, all the rules are very similar. They're all roto rules and there's a couple of, you know, variations, but they're mostly the same. And most of them, this is kind of by accident, most of them are only leagues, which I know they sound more challenging, but once you get in season, there aren't really nearly as many players to 
you know, research and, and think, you know, do I need to pick this guy up or who is this guy? So it was the number of leagues, but also the type of leagues that, that kind of made it optimal for me. I, I think if it were six and a half, 10 or 12 team mixed leagues, I know mixed leagues in a lot of ways seem easier, but for me, they're not because you're, you're constantly like looking at the free agent pool and thinking, Oh, this guy got dropped. I haven't considered him in a while. And yes, I know who he is, but what is he doing lately? And it just adds all these you know decision points to your team. Uh, whereas being in mostly 15 team mix and only leagues kind of takes a lot of those decision points away and being in a weekly fab league does the same thing. You know, it takes a lot of that, you know, time that's like, oh, it's a daily league. I have to constantly keep looking at the waiver wire or the free agent pool. That's what made it better for me. I know what you mean because this year I made a kind of conscious, determined effort to be better at 15 team mix because I'm playing in the TGFBI. And part of that effort included, you know, looking up what successful guys who play NFBC, what are their keys to success? And a lot of them mentioned something that kind of dovetails with what you just said is that you have to be willing to go into the free agent pool every week and, or half week in the case of NFBC rules on offense. And you have to be able to say, is this guy going to get literally three more plate appearances than that guy? And if he is, then I'm going to make that change. And if he's not, then I'm not going to bother. And you, you need to grind at that level of detail because you're playing against a bunch of guys who are grinding at that level of detail. And I started thinking, boy, that, that's a lot of work for, for what's supposed to be a hobby. Yeah. I, and you know, I, I don't mind it. And I, I know some people, you know, don't either, but I, I do agree that if you're at that point where it just feels like, again, that's another word, right? Like, like grind. Like if you, some people yeah. say rise and grind in this positive way, but if you feel like you're just constantly grinding through this and not at a point where you're like, huh, I want to go to a game with a friend, but I, you know, you know, in person, but I can't go because I have to stay home you know, and watch my teams and watch my roster and, you know, make sure if this player gets hurt that I pick him up, you know, immediately or, or if it's daily, you know, moves and not first come first serve, you know, the next day, are you enjoying it? Like, or, or is it something that just, just become, you know, a six month grind where you're just constantly feel you're in this position where you have to pick people up? And yes, I know with a smartphone, you, you can do that at the game, but when I'm socializing with people, even if it's at a baseball game, I like, I like to be socialized. I don't like to be staring at my phone and ignoring that person and, you know, going up, oh, excuse me. You know, I have to, you know, pick up a player for you know, this injured player over here. You offered a series of questions for people who think they might be overburdened and might want to cut down on the number of teams that they, ro- that they operate. And the first one you mentioned was accessibility. What did you mean by league accessibility? Well, it, I could have also used the word easy um or you know ease of gameplay i guess would be a a good one for this so i I want a game that's that's kind of easy to figure out that's easy to understand i I don't want to spend time in season trying to figure out rules so i I know some people for example really like the ot new format i played that for a couple years and i just didn't enjoy it because i felt like i was constantly trying to figure out you know what was happening like you know what was going on um there's like ongoing like auctions in those leagues that are, are just kind of always running and some people enjoy that and the point of all this is i'm not dictating to you or to anybody else like what they do or don't like but for me if i find that inaccessible or, or like a challenge or something where it's like all of this work i i don't really i don't really want to do it you also raised a question on which I think more fantasy managers should reflect. How competitive is the league? And how did you come to include this idea in your assessment? 
Well, I, I'm pretty good at this, and I, you know, I'm I'm modest, but I'll admit, like I'm I'm very good at this. And I started out playing before I started playing in industry leagues, uh, in leagues, you know, in regular leagues, local leagues, home leagues, whatever. And I won a lot of those leagues, and most of those leagues I've left behind. Like I have one left that I've been in for you know for 25 years now that I'm still in that I think is still pretty competitive. And lately I've, I haven't won that league so much, which is a kind of a good sign that it is. I want to have fun, but I don't want to have fun in the way that I'm, you know, beating my, my kid at, at checkers when, you know, she was little is fun, you know, I'm fun in a way where at the end of the season, I feel like I've bested a bunch of good competitors, even I'm still the best one. I don't want to feel I'm so far ahead of them that I'm just winning the league every year. That That's not challenging. Like I, I want to be challenged with this. And and that's what that comes down to. If I don't feel a league is challenging anymore. Yes. It's, it's easy, I guess, to play about against a bunch of weaker players and win or finish second, you know, and if it's a money league, you know, win money, but I don't, I don't really play for the money. Like I, the money's nice and I've, I've won more money in the, over the years and I've lost, but that that's not really why I play. Yeah, I think that's really important. I know guys who play in leagues where they literally win every year because the the other guys in the league just don't pay the amount of attention to it or just aren't as good at it or don't think about it in the same way. And after a while, you have to ask yourself, uh, you know, it's kind of like going into a, a third grade schoolyard and say, who wants to play one-on-one, you know, and uh, and, and start dunking on, on nine-year-old kids and stuff. It's just not as interesting. Your last piece of advice, which summarizes, I guess, what you've been talking about, seemed to paraphrase Act One of Hamlet, where Polonius says to his son Laertes, to thine own self be true. And over the years, that has come to be interpreted to mean, do what's in your own best interest. What do modern fantasy managers do, do you think, that contradicts that advice by not being true to their own interest? I I think a lot of people, like, I, 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 this is something I see a lot. And, and, and I get that, you know, this is just how life is. Like, I see a lot of people who do this or complain, like, that's their default method. You know, we all complain, right? Like, I, I certainly do. And I, I think some of that is is a way that we bond with people. But if you're just complaining all the time, you know, if you're you're just constantly like negative and, and you don't like it and you find that it's just sort of, you know, a grind, like we said before, or, or an obligation, then you probably should scale back. Um, you know, something I mentioned at the end is that there's some people I know uh, who, who love being in a lot of leagues and they, they, they love being in 20 or 30 leagues and they think that's great. Uh, but if, if that's too much for you and you're, you're finding that, ah, you know, that I, I'm not paying attention I forgot a transaction period this week or, or two weeks in a row or, you know, another one too is they, I know people, they fall into the second division and they, they stop competing and it's kind of bad for the rest of the league, right? Because what winds up happening is, is that and I'm not saying you should, you know, spend as much time on that league, but if you're not even like filling your lineup in, it affects the rest of the league because everybody else is moving up because that one person is doing nothing. Um, it, it's worth thinking about other people's enjoyment, I, I think too. So, all these things are worth considering. You know, the, the point of all this, again, is that, you know, do what makes you happy. But but I find for a lot of people being in this many leagues and spraying yourself, and it's not just fantasy baseball. I think this is life advice, too. Like, it, you, you need to find that sweet spot where what you're doing is fun and, and not so much where you're it's it's all you're doing. 
You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. And Mike, at Baseball Prospectus, you also ran a three-part series about risk in fantasy baseball. And risk is something that Ron Chandler and I have talked about on the show. Ariel Cohen talks a lot about risk and other people as well. What got you interested in embracing your inner actuary and writing about the element of risk in fantasy baseball? Well, I think some of it, and you you kind of um, allude to this in, in one of your questions on, on the rundown, I, I think a lot of people talk about risk as an either or, um, or, or a binary. And, you know, they like, so I, I'll see somebody talk about a player and then they'll talk about that player, you know, being too risky or, you know, or how much risk should I, I take? But, but it's far more complicated than that. Like it, it's not just a matter of deciding is Alberto Montesi like, you know, too risky or is he the right price? I, I feel like there's all these other decision points that are tied into risk and all this other analysis that's required that's missing. So while I knew, and I, I said this in, in, in the introductory piece, that I wasn't going to be able to touch upon everything, um, I, I did want to, at the very least, like get some of these concepts out there and you know do a deeper dive that I've seen other people do. This, by the way, this is not a knock on, on Ron Chandler, Ariel Cohen. Um, this is this was more just across the board in terms of. You know, what I'd seen from, you know, in a broader sense. You went on to list three main aspects of how risk needs to be handled in fantasy baseball. And I thought I used to work, you know, I used to be in a company and actually in a couple of companies and risk is a thing that, that people pay a lot of attention to in companies and they follow the model that you suggested here. You have to assess your risk. You have to manage your risk. You have to mitigate it as appropriate and you have to understand your own risk tolerance. So walk us through how these functions work. Well, I mean, I could probably go on for this for a long, long time. Um, you know, as you know, you know, having, you know, been involved with this, but I, I guess I'll, I'll just try to, you know, summarize this. So, you know, the, the first thing I mentioned was risk assessment. And, and here it, it sounds really simple, but it's kind of knowing what the risk is. So I, 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 you know, I mentioned Montesi and I use him as an example. So people will say, oh, you know, Alberto Montesi is risky. It's like, okay, well, what's the cost? What's the opportunity cost of, of taking that risk with, with Montesi? Like who else could you have taken, you know, in the fourth round instead of him? And then the other piece is like, okay, well, how can you replace him? Like we talked about this earlier, right? Uh, so in, in a 10-team mixed league, I think Montessi might actually be a little bit more intriguing just because if he goes down, that replacement you're going to get for him is going to be somebody decent, even if it's not as good as the, the peak of Montessi. Whereas in an AL-only league, uh, I, I, I tend to knock someone like Montessi down quite a bit because I know there's going to be nothing out there and I need those stats. And, you know, I, I mentioned that too. So it's, it's the league format as well. You know, if you're in a really deep league, it, it's one thing, you know, if you're in a shallower league, I, I think you can, you know, probably, you know, grab onto him. Uh, so the next concept I mentioned was risk management. Um, so risk management is tied into the idea that you have to take some chances to, to win a fantasy league. Um, there's an old example years ago. I, I think somebody, you know, talked about this as far as fantasy, they were in a, in a class, it was like an economics class and they had to pick a stock and they, they tracked the stock and whoever got the best performance out of the stock with their fake money won. And what they noticed is the person who won, you know, wasn't the person who invested in IBM or AT&T or, or the super safe stock where they made a little bit of money, but they didn't win. It was the person who kind of diversified, but took the penny stock or maybe the stock a level up that like hit it big. And they wound up making the most imaginary money in this, this concept. So, we accept the idea that we have to like take some risk, 
Um, so managing the risk, though, it, you know, involves like contingency planning and you know coming up with a plan. You know, if something does go wrong, um, knowing how effective that plan will be. Um, you know, if you do, you know, come up with a contingency plan and trying to figure out how well that will work. And then monitoring, right? So it's it's one thing to know how a plan might have worked three years ago, but things change. Like we've been talking on this podcast about rules and, and how they're different. So knowing that in 2021, like things are changing with saves or things are changing with stolen bases, or that power is down is just something you have to keep doing rather than saying, oh, you know, that worked three years ago. It's going to work this year. Um, so the next concept I, I talked about was mitigation. So that's that ties back into how much is risk is the right amount of risk. And this really depends on a lot of factors. But it, it, here there was the concept of avoidance. In some cases, consequences are too high to even take the risk. Um, acceptance, which I think some people get confused by. They think, oh, I should you know just accept risk no matter what. But it's more of the idea of accepting a risk for a finite period of time to allow you to prioritize, you know, mitigating other risks. And the example I gave was taking a elite pitcher with an injury history, right? And knowing, okay, well, I'm, I should ideally get 80 to 100 elite innings out of this pitcher. No, I'm going to need to replace him later. If the price is low enough, you're getting those elite innings and you're taking that risk early, hope, you know, hopefully knowing that you're going to get those innings and be able to add somebody. Um, and then the other you know, concepts I mentioned in in this bucket of risk mitigation uh, was transfer. And, and it's the idea of spreading your risk across different parts of your team. So rather than drafting Miles Straw, who this year you know would have really hurt you, drafting a bunch of five to 10 steel players who hopefully will allow you, if one of those players gets hurt, to still win the category or do well. And again, and this is a concept that comes up in all these concepts, you still want to monitor you know, how you want to mitigate that risk. Uh, and then finally, risk tolerance. Uh, risk tolerance is probably the most common concept that that you hear in in finance. But I broke it down into like the three categories and and tried to like suggest how to use it in fantasy. Uh, conservative risk tolerance I suggested for new fantasy players or someone new to a format where you just try to play it as conservatively as possible. You try to learn the league. You try not to like you know take too many chances. Uh, and then what I generally recommend here is a moderate approach. Uh, I know it sounds really simple, but you need to take some risks to win. Um, you don't really want to, you know, take too many risks during every round of the draft. And then finally, you know, if you're an expert and really smart or uh, in a keeper league, if you have weak keeps, I've done this before in keeper leagues, you might want to get aggressive. You might want to be like, well, I'm probably not going to win this league anyway in, in, a re in, a, you know, in a keeper league where I have bad freezes. So I'm going to try a wacky strategy or I'm going to really go all out on something. If it doesn't work, I probably was going to lose anyway. How much of our risk management and risk approaches do you think, Mike, are just colored by our personalities, the kind of people we are? Oh, I, I think a lot of it is. And I, I think it's really important to kind of know who you are and, and know what your like, risk tolerance is or, or what your aversion is to risk. Uh, something that might work very well for other people. You know, I see people do very prospect-heavy drafts. And they do that because they're they're confident in their ability to um, scout prospects. But I also think they do it because they're confident in like knowing, well, if this doesn't work, I, I feel pretty comfortable going out there and finding some some players or, or replacements. I think there are some people who are very comfortable with a conservative approach. Like, well, I'm a projection person. I'm, I, I know how the models work. 
I want my team to at least coming out of the draft to hit those projections. So knowing your personality, knowing what, what works for you, it doesn't work for you, I think is as important as, as all of this, this information, you, you have to know where your comfort level is. If you decide to do a, a, a risk heavy or an aggressive strategy in, in terms of, uh, risk tolerance and that's not who you are, I think it's going to probably fail for you and you might even feel cheated. You might feel like, oh, you know, I, I got some bad advice here, but really you have to know what works for you before you go out and do it. You devoted an article to how league size affects risk. Walk us through that. Um, well, that that's a kind of another broad concept, but uh, you know, kind of the idea here, you know, just, just to start out, if you're in an only league, uh, the lack of depth in, in the free agent pool places a lot of importance on your draft. So you probably want to be a little less risk averse in, in a deeper league. You want to make sure to get the lock those stats early and, and bank them in. Uh, whereas in a mixed league, the example I used was, you know, someone like Akil Badu. Uh, I didn't like Badu um, and I, I, I stayed away from him. But if you took him in the 12th round of, of a 12 team mixed league, which is about where he went, um, you probably were able to replace him. You know, maybe you didn't get someone as good as Badu right away, uh, but through trial and error, you could just keep, you know, attempting to to pick players up. Um, you know, the other side of this in mixed leagues too, um, those grinders that I like. You know, I, I had Andrew Benintendi in, in an only league this year, and until I got hurt, he was he was actually pretty good. I know the power wasn't really there. Um, in a mixed league, I, I think you're better off leaving those players in the free agent pool. Um, yes, there, there's a week, you know, where you might be able to pick him up or use him for matchups or use him for platoons. Uh, but for the most part, I don't think you want Ben intending in there, you know, week in, week out. So those are a couple of ways that, you know, it league size affects risk. Uh, it definitely, you know, so it's rules too, but it, it th those are the biggest areas where you can kind of take advantage of that. We talked earlier about grinding for stats and in that same article, you said that regardless of league size, that there's a risk of streaming pitchers and that that risk is often misidentified. What did you mean? Well, uh, I, a popular, I don't want to call it a misconception, but, but a popular piece of advice that I see is, you know, go out there and get a two star pitcher. Two star pitchers are great. Uh, I think that used to be true. I, what I find happening more and more, particularly in you know fifteen team and and only leagues, uh, you're putting two categories at risk uh, in exchange for one with certainty in strikeouts, and one category where you might help yourself. But as we in wins, but as we talked about earlier, those wins for starting pitchers aren't coming as much as they used to. So what winds up happening is you you put yourself in this position where I think people say, oh, you know, two-star pitcher, automatic ad, you know, automatic stream or almost always automatic unless the pitcher's pitching in cores or, or skills are extremely weak. But I, I really think that you, you know, it, it's a piece where people are, are making mistakes as far as just automatically taking that pitcher. The third article zoomed in on a couple of categories, saves and steals. Why the added focus on those two in particular? Uh, well, I focus on those categories because something I, I find interesting, every other category in, in baseball, like, you know, so home runs can drop and, and fall and pitcher strikeouts can, can drop and fall. But, and I, and I introduce this piece by saying we have a lack of control over, over what happens, but that lack of control doesn't really impact the game. Uh, a manager is not going to tell a batter to stop hitting home runs or a pitcher to stop striking out batters. Um, but teams have changed their philosophy on on saves and stolen bases. So 
I wanted to focus on those categories and I mostly focused on saves because I wanted to show how that altered the fantasy landscape and how we should approach those categories differently because of the way major league teams are now looking at them. When it comes to stolen bases, of course, there have been league changes, rule changes as well at the major league level. The bags are going to be a little bit bigger and it doesn't sound like much, but when you look at it closely, it actually is pretty significant. Four and a half inches is the difference between a lot of caught stealings and a lot of stolen bases. And the pitchers are going to be restricted insofar as how many times they're allowed to throw over to pin a guy back on first base or even to step off the rubber in general. So they seem to be loading the field a little bit in favor of stolen bases. How does that knowledge affect your thinking about stolen bases and how to draft them and the risk of it? Well, it, it probably, it makes, it's very interesting because it, it makes the category in some ways less risky. However, there's still some pieces that I, I don't think it's going to be linear. Like, I don't think everybody is going to start running more. I, I, there's certain players who are going to run more. Um, I would think the elite stolen bait, you know, players who are steal at an elite rate are going to run even more. It's the players in the middle and, and maybe even toward the bottom I'm kind of interested in. Like, there's other factors like injury risk. You know, there's other factors like players still, you still need to get there. And, and not everybody has elite or even middle of the road sprint speed. And those factors make me wonder how much a player, for example, who stole five to 10 bases this year, jump up to 10 to 15 or will he you know maybe just jump up to, to 7 to 12 uh, looking at it in a macro i think what i'm probably going to do is i'm i, I usually do what the projection models do and, and build in a bit of a penalty for everybody like maybe like i don't know 15 10 to 15 percent maybe higher for some players i think i'm going to manually intervene and take that penalty away for certain players just because i do believe stolen bases are going to go up but I don't think it's going to be universal. Someone like Mike Trout, for example, who has for the most part stopped running because of injury, I just don't see him running regardless of, of that advantage. You also said about the risk of drafting elite closers, and I find this interesting because I've been talking about it a lot here on Baseball HQ Radio with uh, guys like Rob DiPietro who had it ran a league recently, an actual league that's going to run next year, a draft champions format, draft and hold, and he drafted an, an elite closer, Edwin Diaz, in the second round, and he predicted that there's going to be a lot of that kind of movement, that that there's going to be more closers. The elite closers will go earlier and earlier. And you said that there's a risk in drafting an elite closer early. The opportunity cost, overstated in terms of the hitter or starting pitcher you didn't get, and understated in terms of how your roster is affected. What did you mean? That was interesting. Well, I, so what I, what I said here is I think sometimes people, I've seen this happen. So, you know, if, if someone drafted Josh Hader this year, you know, and Josh Hader won, I think late second, early third round, there's a lot of gnashing of like, oh, you know, you could have had Aaron Judge or you could have had Jordan Alvarez. But of course, you also could have gotten Whit Barefield or, or Teoscar Hernandez at, at that same, you know, point too, right? So we always look at the, we always compare A to B. So we always look at the success of the hitter versus the failure of the closer and say, see, that's what you should have done. That's kind of silly. But where I think it does matter, you know, it matters in terms of roster construction. So about 34%, this is over the last three years, about 34% of a fantasy um, league's offensive or team's offensive production is taken in the first three rounds of a 15-team draft. So if you take a closer in those first three rounds, 
it doesn't mean you can't make up that ground on offense later. Uh, it just narrows your margin for error. It just means you need to nail it in the later rounds. So can you do that? Of course you can. And, you know, Jeff Zimmerman of, of uh, you know, I was looking at some of his roster builds over, at, you know, him at Fangraphs. He, he did it well. Um, I, I just think that you have to be, you know, and Rob's another example. I, I think you have to be an elite player to do it well. And, and it's funny, this, this, this ties into risk for this reason. If you're an elite player and, and you're great at this game and, you know, you have the ability to identify those hitters later, then I don't think there's, it's a big deal if you take one of those closers early. Um, if you're not quite as good at that and, and you're kind of worried you're going to miss on some of those later hitters, I think you're just better off, you know, not taking a close in the first two or three rounds. I don't like it. It doesn't really work for me. And, you know, Hader and Henders kind of kind of illustrate the problem. This is something I've talked about before, too, which is uh, if you take a hitter, and I might have talked about all these articles, actually. You know, if you take Nick Castellanos, for example, and, you know, Castellanos was very disappointing this year, but he still, he still was above replacement level. He still delivered some of the things you wanted, even though it wasn't, you know, everything you wanted. If you take a closer, he loses his job on May 15th, and he's a poor performer, you got absolutely nothing from that draft slot. So that's just where I advise to be careful with this strategy. We we all think, oh, you know, we should take a closer early. The, the problem with it is that if you miss on Castellanos, if you miss on Tiasca Hernandez, even with Merrifield, you know, Whit Merrifield wasn't good this year, but he stole, I think, 16 bases before he got traded and, and just pretty much got buried on Toronto's bench. He gave you something. Uh, if a closer loses his job on May 15th, you're just going to get nothing for that premium draft slot at all. You also said that changes in the real game mean anyone who still advises drafting, we'll call it a sleeper closer in the middle rounds or stashing a bunch of non-closer relievers in the late rounds is, and I'm quoting here, relying on an outmoded model that fails to acknowledge the opportunity cost of this strategy. It's an interesting concept. What do you mean? Well, you know, so we were talking about this a little bit too. So, you know, it used to be, you know, if you go back and, and look at how saves were distributed um, a few years ago, um, and, and this, this really doesn't go back that far. This goes back to 2015. Um, there, there were 28 closers who, who saved 20 or, or more games. There were 16 closers who, who saved, I'm sorry, there were 21 closers who saved, this includes the 28, but there were 20 closers who saved 30 or more. So even if you didn't draft a closer at the beginning of the season who, who was one of those pitchers, chances are excellent you just dipped into the free agent pool and, and picked somebody up. Um, and this is also true of, of your later round spec plays. So if you took a reliever in the 27th round who you know wasn't the closer to start and got the job, chances are really good that that person, if he was good, kept the job all year. That is just not is what that's not what's happening anymore. Uh, so what's happening is if you make a late round spec play on a reliever and he's knocking those 25 to 30 saves and he's getting 10 to 15 saves, that's okay. Like, I mean, that that's fine, but it means you're going to be churning all year. So you're going to be, you know, using fab, you're going to be making trades, perhaps if you're a trading league, and it's just a lot of energy and effort. But I really think the big loss here, and this is something people don't talk about, if you throw two or three or four darts on your reserve list, list at closers, you are missing out on the potential to get someone, someone like an Andres Jimenez, you know, in, in the late rounds who could really be a contributor to your team that you're not going to find later in the free agent pool. Um, I did this analysis in a separate article. I, I think last year, um, out of the top 100 value plays who were free agents, 
believe there were six or seven hitters that fell into that bucket. And the only reliever who fell into that bucket was Emmanuel Classe, who was great. Like, so if you, you know, got Emmanuel Classe, that that's wonderful. But there's just so many more hitters who can fit that description, whether it's on reserve or via free agency, who are going to add value to your team. So this is why I like the idea of taking one decent closer or one stab at a decent closer early, because those spec plays in the middle at the end, they, they almost never work out. And unless you're willing to dump the category, you, you do want to try to get your saves. Yeah, it always struck me that anybody who goes for those uh, maybe closer type things are, are the kind of people who draw to an inside straight versus, you know, just playing smart and, and taking your two pair or whatever and, and running with it. But uh, talking about the change in how Major League Baseball teams are running their bullpens, I've been seeing a lot of Twitter gab going on about the need for us to reconsider the category of saves in category-based leagues and somehow adopting some variation of saves plus holds or save plus half times holds or something like that to reflect the value that is being created in real baseball by relievers who aren't getting saves. What do you think? Was this the um, Fred Zinke post on, on Twitter? Because I, I actually started writing about this and I'm just kind of forming ideas in my head. So I, my general feeling about holds is I don't like it as a category. And, you know, one of the reasons I don't like it. So one reason I'm not the biggest fan of quality starts, for example, or replacing wins with quality starts, I feel like you're taking an inferior category or, or a flawed category and just swapping out a different flawed category. So with holds, this is kind of how I feel too. So saves is a flawed category. I, I, I grant that. But adding holds to the mix just takes another flawed category. If the goal here, and I think this was something that, that Fred said, and I, I have the tweet up so I, I, I can read the exact words rather than you know garble it. He said, let's get to a place where we look at relief pitcher skills over managerial tendencies and preferences. I just don't think that's what we're doing by adding holds. And if we want to look at reliever skills, we might want to use something like, you know, like, WPA, you know, or, or like win probability added per, per game. The problem is that's a hard stat to find. It's also kind of a clunky stat, but it does do that. It does, does take reliever performance and be like, okay, well, this reliever added X number of win probability and, you know, add this much value in his performance by facing the heart of the lineup in this high leverage situation, you know, versus a reliever who, you know, two innings before faced the bottom of the lineup. If you're giving them both a hold, you're not, you're not really accomplishing what I think Fred here is is saying he wants to accomplish. Now it's Twitter, so I, I don't want to knock Fred. Fred. Fred's an extremely smart analyst. He knows what he's talking about. He's a great player. Um, th there's another piece of this, too, which is I, I, I feel where we have problems. We So right now, in many leagues, we carry like six or seven starters and two or three closers, and maybe, unless it's an only league, we, we carry one middle reliever. I think some of the challenges, the game has changed, and teams are, you know, major league teams are, are using 13-pitcher rosters, but we haven't really accommodated that for our game. Um, if we were going to, like, reconstruct our the game now, maybe it would be better it would be to have, like, 10 or, or 11 relievers per team and like a slotting requirement where you have to carry, you know, five starting pitchers or maybe six starting pitchers. You have to carry, you know, two or three closers and you have to carry two middle relievers. Now, I know that's tough because closers always, you know, change and, and slot out. 
but having a rule where maybe it's not closers, but you have, you know, a, a four reliever requirement and, and it's 10 pitchers would sort of eliminate some of this. And then the other point I'd make, which, which is kind of interesting is I, I think Fred and, 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 you know, Jeff Erickson, so much analysis of Rotowire has moved toward NFBC and overall contests, but in leagues that aren't overall contests, like, like Tout Wars and like labor and like many leagues that people play in, a lot of this is already baked in because you have the choice of going for a marginal closer who, who might or might not get many saves or carrying a, an elite reliever. You know, you mentioned, you know, Simber before who's going to pick up some wins, you know, who, who's going to have great ratios. And, and that's kind of the, the opportunity there where it's like, well, I feel like our game, even though it's imperfect accounts for this already, because really the choice you have is going for a marginal closer and maybe getting saves or, going for that elite reliever where you know there might not be any saves to get, but he's going to help you in every other category. So the game kind of already does this already, and I don't necessarily need feel like we need to add this layer to, to accomplish this. Now, if you want to add holds because it, it makes the game more challenging, it's a category we haven't used before, or, or you know, it, it's, it adds to gameplay, I think that's okay. I, I just don't necessarily think it fixes some of these, these problems that were, were identified. I thought the main complaint with the idea of adding holds was that it changed the way that we look at the categories in that there's a strategic component in trying to value where you want to get your closers, what, how much you want to spend on them and so forth, which would be removed from the calculation if you, if you put holds in and all of a sudden all the relievers are fair game. I think that one of the ways you could fix it is just by making pitching staffs larger in fantasy baseball. They're, they're too small as it is. The 14-9 split just doesn't represent the way major league rosters are currently constructed. And I think it should be something more like 12 and 11 or something like that if you want to maintain the 23 guys. And if you did extend the size of the overall pitching staff, I suspect some players would probably load up on more starters chasing wins and strikeouts, but I also suspect that there would be an untapped market for those relief pitchers who do a really good job of protecting ratios and who give you the flexibility in season to swap out one guy who's not performing for another guy who maybe is, which isn't there for a lot of the other positions, especially in deeper leagues, as you say. I find the whole discussion is is really interesting. And I thought it was also interesting that you mentioned a a stat like uh, WPA, where you're looking at the good that the relief pitcher actually did. And that seems to open up the possibility or something to consider that maybe that's what we ought to be doing with all the players is using some kind of model of, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, war or something along those lines to calculate who won the league. But the downside to it, as you also alluded to, is that it's hard to calculate. It can't be found, you know, in your morning wrap-up of the box scores and takes a lot of the fun out of it that way. And, you know, there's a lot of guys who will say with some justification, when Aaron Judge hits a home run and he's on my team, I know that's good, just period. Right. And I know exactly how it's good in a way that I don't necessarily know that his home run was that good in a in a war sense because it's so diffused with all the other things that go into the mix. Well, I think I think that's a large part of it is that you know fantasy baseball is about instant gratification and in a lot of ways about simplicity. So, like what I want when I'm like like I know for example that earned run average is a flawed stat. Um, you know, I, I know that's something else that Zimmerman goes on about all the time. And he's right. It, it is a flawed statistic. However, I also know it, it's a very simple statistic. So I know 
that even though it's not the best statistic, that when my pitcher gives up four runs in an inning, I'm going to be mad about it. I'm going to be annoyed. Uh, whereas if for some reason we decided to use like FIP or DRA or you know some other you know stat that corrects for that, it's I'm, I have to figure that out. I have to calculate that, and I, I don't really want to be doing that. I want the instant gratification of watching the game and being happy or frustrated by by the result. Like I think that's some of the the visceral fun of playing fantasy. Now, now again, to, to the point, holds doesn't really take away from that because you're still getting that with a hold. Um, it, so that that really isn't. You know, I don't think that's a complaint about adding as a category. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I agree with what you say about the immediate effect when you're watching your team and your pitcher gives up four runs in an inning. You know that's bad. But when a reliever comes in and he gives up a run in a certain situation, it's a hold. And he gives up a run in another situation, it's not a hold. And sometimes it's a blown save. And you have to go grab a rule book to figure out while you're watching to figure out, you know, did this guy just get a hold or blow a save or did he get both? You know, I, I don't understand how this rule works. And I think from that point of view, it's it's really a flawed statistic because at least we know when our reliever comes in and, and gets the guys out in the ninth and, and preserves a, even a three run lead. Hey, I got to say, great. But this, this whole thing is just, I think even as a accounting stat, it's just, it's too complicated to figure out while you're watching the game. And from that reason, I think it just fails. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I see your point. I, I, it's funny if, if it were a category, like if tower to add it or, you know, add a saves plus holds, I know they added it in one of their, their offshoots. I'd live with it. It's like anything else. I'd be like, okay, you know, fine. I'll, I'll figure it out. Sure. Um, I, I do agree with you that aesthetically it's, it's not as bad as like, you know, a war based stat or WPA. It, it just isn't, it isn't the cleanest stat either. It, it isn't something that necessarily speaks to like the, the most, in the moment gameplay as, as I was putting it. I wonder if a stat could be manufactured for those kind of relief appearances for all relievers, not necessarily just uh, closers and setup guys, just some way of calculating just by watching the game. Could I understand that this was an effective relief appearance, which would be ERA, which would be kind of confusing. I suppose you'd have to call it something else, but, but you know, could we say the guy came in, he gave up you know, fewer hits or fewer base runners than he got outs that, and, and didn't give up a run. That's an effective appearance or something like that. And if we could build that kind of model, maybe if we did it in tout, we could in, introduce a whole new <laughs> thing and improve the game yeah. for all the people out there in the world. I know, but, but again, it's, it's a thing about this that, that I get, that gets missed. Like we're already using reliever ERA, like, and we're already using like reliever wins because most of the tout leagues only any tout leagues, except maybe the like head to head use quality starts or one of them does. So it's kind of this idea that I, I feel in a lot of ways we are measuring reliever effectiveness within our game. I don't want to say correctly, but it's, it's being measured. Like it's, it's being applied. Um, you know, if, if saves, I, I guess if saves were the only category that relievers were getting a contribution from, then I would definitely see it. Then I feel like, okay, well we have all these other relievers who, who exist, and just nothing's happening for them. But every time a reliever comes into a game, even if it's not a save situation, it affects our teams. And yes, it's frustrating when, you know, we have a reliever on our team and the whole week, you know, he's, he doesn't get a save and he, you know, or, or he blows a save or he comes into a tie game and doesn't get a save, but it can still be a positive week. It's just one category, albeit a big category that's, that's being affected. Well, this week's tout table, I think it's maybe the last one of the year, but the tout table is a, 
weekly thing that Todd Zola runs where he sends out a question that all of us in Tout Wars uh, offer an answer to. And this week's is, what rules changes would you like to suggest? And I expect that the saves plus hold things were probably going to be uh, one of the things that a lot of the Touts are interested in discussing. And it's open for anybody to look at. I don't know the exact path, but if you go to toutwars.com, you can get a link and go read what the experts are saying about all kinds of issues, and this week the issue is rules changes. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. And Mike, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at boons and banes, and since this season is all but done, uh, we're looking ahead to 2023. I know you haven't had a chance to start digging into 2023 just yet, but maybe you could give us uh, some ideas about boons and banes. Let's start in the American League with a batter who could be a boon for next year. So I normally like to take boring veterans for this, but I'm going to mix it up a little bit and uh, start, go with a rookie or a young player and MJ Melendez. Now, I, I, I think MJ Melendez on the surface looks like a disappointing hitter. Um, you know, 16 home runs, you know, kind of, kind of a league average hitter, um, bounced around all, you know, all over the place on the diamond. Uh, I, I I think there's, there's a curve here, you know, particularly a curve for somebody who, uh, played most of his games a catcher is a tough position. It's a demanding position. I think it takes away from some of your hitting. I, I don't want to say people are going to forget about Melendez, but I, I think some of the hype about him coming into this year is going to be, you know, seem like he was a disappointment. I, I really think that you have to look at what he did at his age. He was 23 and, and see that there's some room for improvement. You know, one thing I like is while well, 25% strikeout rate isn't great, it's not off the charts. Um, I, I think he held his own. Um, he also walked 13 percent of the time. So while that batting average looks low, the um, base percentage was was acceptable. I I just think you're going to see more out of him. Um, and also he kept his catcher eligibility, which is which is great. So you know he's still going to be catcher eligible. Um, so Melendez for me for for this segment. I heard a podcast the other day where the guys were talking about catching and. I agree with uh, somebody on the podcast said, boy, it's going to be a real good year next year for catchers. There's going to be a lot of, of different kinds of catchers offensively that you're going to be able to look at. And it's going to be kind of interesting to figure out how to rank the catchers next year. Do you look at all those stolen bases that Real Muto might or might not get next year? And uh, there's various other ways that they're building value that make it a really interesting year, I think, next year for catchers. And MJ Melendez, I agree with you. I think he's absolutely in that mix. Uh, in the National League, who's a batter who could be a boon for you? The batter I looked at here is somebody who who was disappointing. Um, <laughs> also kind of young, but, but not that old. Brendan Rodgers of the Rockies. Uh, so, you know, Rodgers' big knock, I, I think, coming into this year was that he, you know, generally couldn't stay healthy. Um, he did just get hurt. Um, he, he's nursing a hamstring injury, but you know, 552 plate appearances. I, I think what's disappointing about Rogers is you know he's at cores and he hit only 11 home runs. Um, just just a down season uh, across the board. But I still think he's young enough. You know, he's 25 years old this year. He'll be 26 next year. That there's some improvement potentially baked in. Uh, I also think you know he's one of those players when I, I kind of look at the batted ball data. Uh, he, he struggled in the second half. Uh, his barrels are down, but a lot of his other numbers, like his hard hit rate and you know, his other stack ass indicators kind of stayed the same. Um, the nice thing about Rodgers, I think people are going to look at him and just sort of ignore him or be like, ah, you know, he, he kind of is what he is. He doesn't run. I mean, he didn't have it for average. He's not going to do much. I just think he's going to be available at a nice price. 
Um, and you know, if he does somehow do what he did again this year, I don't really think you're going to be disappointed. I think you'll just have him on your team, like, eh, you know, whatever he is, what he is. But I, I think there's some room for improvement still with Rogers. Yeah. It looks like if you had Brendan Rogers and got the same amount of plate appearances as this year with a performance per plate appearance that he had last year, he had an 800 OPS and uh, I think 15 homers and about 400 plate appearances. So you give him another 150 plate appearances and all of a sudden those 15 home runs become 22, 23 home runs and his batting average around 285 or so on base percentage in the low 330s. I think that Brendan Rogers just needs to put it all together and that would really make him somebody who'd be tremendously interesting Uh, over to the mound how about an american league pitcher who could be a 2023 boon so this is funny usually for these segments i try to pick somebody disappointing who um you know is going to bounce back uh but the pitcher who caught my eye is somebody who you know really overperformed and took a step forward and I'm, i'm betting on him continuing to be very good even though i don't think he'll keep this level um and that's martin perez with with the rangers uh, I, I tried to find like ways to knock him and look at his performance and say, oh, you know, there's no way he's going to keep it up. Uh, but what I see is a pitcher with an elite command profile in, in a good ballpark who really just figured things out. Um, I, I don't again, I don't think he's going to put up a sub three ERA, but but I think people are going to look at his past numbers prior to 2022 and expect major regression and stay away from him because he's not a huge strikeout guy. And I think that's a mistake. I, I think Perez easily could put up an ERA in the low to mid threes. Um, there's enough strikeouts there. And he really kept the ball on the ground. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, he he's in a, a, a strong pitcher spark. So I think people are going to expect Perez to, to fall apart next year. And as a result, there, there should still be some room for bargain with him in next year's drafts. I think this is a, a good pick. It, it's an interesting stat cast profile. You mentioned uh, like he's really good at controlling hard hit contact. And I think that's something that we don't look at hard, hard enough. Uh, expected slugging percentage is really low. Barrel percentage is off the charts. Terrific. And yet on the other side, you look at all the sort of per pitch metrics and they're not that great. So it could be a case of somebody, as you said, who's figuring things out as much as just getting his, his pure skills in order. He's making the most of the skills he has, and that's not to be overlooked, I think, when we're calculating how to value pitchers. Uh, how about a National League pitcher who could be a boon? So somebody who doesn't even have a regular role right now, so it's going to be contingent on if that happens. And, you know, somebody who struggled has struggled in the second half and especially this past month, uh, that's David Peterson with the Mets. Um, So some of Peterson's struggles are just what I said, that he doesn't have a regular role, that he's kind of bounced in and out of the rotation. He's been used as a sixth starter. And yes, the Mets have had injuries, but they, they haven't had so many injuries this year where he's just has stayed in the rotation. Um, I really like a lot of the improvements that that Peterson has made. Um, he attacks his own. Um, he throws multiple pitches for strikes. Um, he he's really you know he's really done a good job on the whole of improving his command profile. Um, so I think everybody's going to just remember the second half. He had a sinker against the Cubs. Um, the strikeouts are even up as well. Um, I think there's an opportunity here for Peterson to kind of be a, an SB4 in, or maybe SB5 in, in like shallower fantasy leagues. And I think people are, are not going to really look at him because of the poor performance in, in the second half. So I like Peterson as one of those pitchers you just take on reserve or take toward the back end of, of a deeper league. 
Uh, if he doesn't work out, great. You cut him, you move on quickly. But I, I think there's something here where he could work out and be a solid mid-tier starter for you. The knock on him when I'm looking at pitchers is he does give up a lot of pretty hard contact, and that's something that he needs to get under control, or the Mets certainly have the resources to not suffer that kind of performance for very long. Over to the Baines we go. These are players you think are going to be disappointing next year based on this year or other factors. Uh, How about an American League batter you think could be a 2023 Bane? Well, this is somebody I I was kind of in on this year, and I I had him in tout, but um, I think I'm going to stay away from him. Uh, And that's Carlos Correa. Uh, He's a solid baseball player in real life. Uh, It's just he always misses time. And I know this year he he played more um, than he he typically did in in Houston, but he's just a hard player to roster. You know, we talked earlier about stolen bases and how they're, you know, going to go up and players are going to run more. Correa just doesn't run and he doesn't run because, you know, because he's injury prone. So, you know, what you're kind of looking at here at his best is like a 25 home run hitter um, with no speed and, you know, very good average, but not necessarily an elite one. I I just feel like people are going to really push Correa up based on his reputation and based on his age. Now, of course, he could be a free agent as an opt-out clause. So, you know, if he opts out and winds up in, you know, Coors Field or or in a very favorable hitting environment, or on a team like the Dodgers, you know, that has a bunch of, of you know talent hitters around him, then I might change that. But based on current circumstances, I, I think I'm not going to be inclined to take Correa next year. Yeah, I think the knock I have on Correa is I'm not 100% confident that Minnesota is going to present the kind of offensive lineup that allows him to get counting stats, his runs and RBIs, or I think he's in the 60s this year so far in 540 plate appearances. So even if you prorated up to 650 or whatever, that's barely 80 on those two things. And, and take out stolen bases, RBIs, and runs, all of a sudden you're not looking at that great of a fantasy asset, that's for sure. Uh, how about a National League batter who could be a bane? So this is a case where, you know, there were reasons to stay away from this player this year and he, he succeeded despite that, but I'm still wary. Um, that's JT Realmuto. So JT Realmuto could, if he steals three more bases, put up a 2020 season, which at any position would be incredible. Um, at catcher, it, it's really would be special if he did that. And I think Realmuto is a great player. Um, I just hear talk of drafting him like the number one catcher next year because of those steals or very early because he's a catcher. I am just wary of taking a 32 year old catcher, um, you know, at a position where typically games played start to drop injuries start to mount as great as he is. There's a lot of risk. And if I'm wrong and he does this again next year, I'd rather live with that. Uh, particularly because while the stats he's putting up are elite for his position, they're not necessarily elite across the board. And if he's going to go for a third round price, I'd just rather take somebody else uh, rather than take that baked in risk at the position. I'll say that had this been the baseball of a couple of years ago when there was no DH in the National League, I'd be way more concerned than I am now because I think that they have a pathway to let him play more games just by letting him DH once in a while and let somebody else catch. But yeah, 32 years old, guys don't generally increase their stolen bases. And, and especially for a catcher, as you said, I think I don't think that JT Real Muto is a bad fantasy asset. I think the cost is going to be probably too high. Uh, back over to the mound we go. How about an American League pitcher who could be a bane? Well, you know, this is almost a gimme, but uh, Michael Walker on the Red Sox. So, uh, you know, great year, um, sub three ERA. Um, but unlike Perez, you know, who I mentioned on the other side of this, 
I think walk is fine. I it just you're looking at a pitcher though with a low strikeout rate, um, a low BABIP, um, a high you know left on base. There's just so many indicators here that you know even if Waka has figured out how to mitigate home runs, which you know his home run per fly ball rate is is really down. I just think there's enough of the numbers that we we shouldn't expect him to to do what he did this year. And then there's the other piece too, which is you know Waka has never really put up. You know, he's never put up more than 181 in a third innings. Um, you have to go back to 2017, you know, to find a season with more than 127 innings. So, you know, you're taking a pitcher who's probably going to miss some time. Um, if the price falls, I'll, I'll take him. We talked about this earlier, generally speaking, but I just think people are going to really push him up uh, based on this year's performance. A lot will depend on where he ends up. I think he's a free agent at the end of the season as well and could end up anywhere based on this good season. And finally, how about a National League pitcher who could be a 2023 Bane? Well, I, I mean, this is, this is somebody who's struggled lately, and I'm not really concerned about the recent struggles, but I'm concerned about the workload, and that's Corbin Burns. Um, so Corbin Burns, um, you know, Cy Young winner last year, looked like he was in the mix. You know, suddenly he, he slipped a little bit. Uh, still has a 3-1-2 ERA, and, and the peripherals actually support the ERA, so it's not really the problem. But he just looks like a pitcher who the, the movement isn't as sharp. I mean, he's still throwing pretty hard, but he looks kind of gassed. And some of the concern with him coming into this year was that he had never thrown you know a lot of innings, that the Brewers were cautious with him in 2021. Um, I, I'm actually wondering if they might consider shutting him down once they're eliminated this year, just or I should say if they're eliminated just because of that workload. Um, but I, I just have some concerns going into next year that that there's going to be a hangover effect. And while I still think he'll be good, um, if people are going to you know be pricing him or going after him because of that those that high strikeout total and expecting another elite season, I just think there might be some regression coming. Like still still a good pitcher, just not necessarily a pitcher who's going to produce like that that first or second round value. Like I think many, including me, were expecting. Yeah, I wonder if his price is going to be somewhat uh, lower than we might otherwise expect because of the experience a lot of guys had this year with the way that first round or early round starting pitchers went, and a lot of them were disappointing, and I've already heard people saying, you know what you need to do is instead of a starting pitcher in that early round, that's where you need to take your closer and then get your starting pitcher a little later on. So I wonder if a lot of these guys are just going to fall down uh, a round or two just based on the experience that people had this year. I don't know. It's an interesting thing. Mike Gianella's Boons, MJ Melendez of Kansas City, Brendan Rogers of Colorado, Martin Perez of Texas, and David Peterson of the Mets, his Baines, Carlos Correa of Minnesota, or somewhere next year, JT Realmuto of Philadelphia, Michael Waka of Boston, or somewhere next year, and Corbin Burns of Milwaukee. Uh, Mike, remind our listeners where they can keep up with your work. Well, I'm at Baseball Prospectus. Um, I, I write two articles a week there, um, baseballprospectus.com. I, it, most of what I do is, is behind a paywall, but uh, I do encourage subscriptions because it's not just me. We have a lot of great writers over there, just like you do at HQ. Um, I'm on Twitter at Mike Gianella, all one word. Um, I currently, both of my podcasts are currently inactive, but there is some talk that Flags Fly Forever, uh, which is the flagship fantasy podcast at Baseball Prospectus, will be returning um, sometime this winter. So um, if you do follow Flags Fly Forever on Twitter, um, look for an announcement there. 
Well, that would be good news if it came back because it was an excellent podcast and it was, uh, I'm not going to say disappointing because it's your life and you can do what you want with it, but I liked it. So it cost me something. So uh, I was disappointed that we didn't hear more of you uh, this year on the podcast side as well. Mike, this has been a treat. I expected it would be and certainly no disappointment there. Thanks very much for helping out. And uh, I guess we'll talk to you maybe with any luck in New York next year. Well, sounds good. Hopefully I'll make it out. Mike Gianello writes for Baseball Prospectus. Later, we'll have our second feature expert interview with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. And meanwhile, coming up next, we have our Market Watch player news reports. Nick has the National League News. Ray has the American League. Next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know for one last time about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Facts and Flukes Performance Validation, analyst Greg Pyron looks at five national leaguers, including Max Muncy, Tyler O'Neill, and Miguel Rojas. Facts and Flukes Performance Validation is just one of the great resources available to you all the time when you're a member of the team at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's our National League News and our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Always good to be here. Let's start in St. Louis. A couple of items. Uh, Tyler O'Neill has been sent to the IL. He's got a hamstring problem. They reinstated Dylan Carlson. Uh, Zach Larson covering the story for playing time today. Tyler O'Neill hasn't been doing too bad, so it's a little bit of a disappointment. You know, O'Neill's been solid over the past month. 84 at-bats, 264 expected batting average, uh, 166 expected power index as the everyday center fielder replacement for Carlson. And Carlson could resume his role in center field. This uh, could alternately provide an opportunity to get Alec Burleson some extra opportunities, although he has struggled up to this point. 20 at-bats, 150 batting average, uh, 227 OPS. So uh, if Burleson can get his back going, he could force a strong side platoon alongside Carlson, but we'll have to wait and see if that's actually going to happen. Meanwhile, boy, I remember the hullabaloo when St. Louis called up Nolan Gorman, one of their top prospects earlier this year. It was a very exciting development. Uh, didn't do so well, and now all of a sudden he's been sent back to AAA. Uh, Zach Larson, again, covering this story, he covers the St. Louis for playing time today. So with Gorman... Uh, out of the picture, what goes on with the St. Louis infield? Yeah, Gorman's recent offensive struggles, uh, 60 at-bats, 168 expected batting average, 80 expected power index. And that's that's been combined with the club's uh, sputtering offense recently. Uh, that's likely led to what they, they have uh, done in hopes of providing some kind of a spark uh, to both Gorman and, and the offense. Uh, Juan Yepes has been away from the team since heading to the IL in mid-July, produced a solid slash line over the past month. 83 at bats, 289, 366, 590, although that's against minor league pitching. He showed some pop earlier this season, 252 at bats, 234 expected batting average, 138 expected power index, and the club will be likely hoping for more of the same with Juan Yepes back on the roster. I like that Juan Yepes. Yeah, he's, uh, he seems like a very, very, uh, a very useful kind of guy at this point plays a lot of positions eligible both infield and outfield. And, uh, I'm certainly going to look and see if he's available on my, 
by waiver wire since he uh, was demoted earlier. In Cincinnati, some bad news like the Reds needed more bad news. Uh, outfielder Nick Senzel is going to miss the rest of the season. He ran into the center field fence and broke his left uh, toe, one of his left toes. I guess he doesn't just have the one, uh, one giant toe for his whole foot. But whatever he's got down there, it's busted and he's not going to play anymore. So what happens uh, as Cincinnati plays out the string, who gets the outfield reps? Uh, T.J. Friedel and Stuart Fairchild are likely to platoon in center field in Senzel's absence. Uh, Friedel has been swinging a hot stick and likely to secure a spot in their 2023 plans. And Sindel continues to be plagued by injuries. He's had a rough, a rough career that way. And he did post a career high number of at bats in 2022. Uh, and hopefully will not, uh, th- this will not carry over into 2023 and his toe will heal quickly. It probably will, but uh, it seems to be, uh, if memory serves, this guy spent a lot of time on the I.L. with all kinds of different problems. And at a certain point, Nick, doesn't it come to where you have to look at a Senzel as he comes available on your free agent board in a draft and you start thinking to yourself, well, you know, he's down here in uh, round X, which is a lot lower than he has been in the last couple of years, but there's good reason for it because I might only get 300 at bats. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's right. I mean, I we, you know, it's it's uh one of those things that 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 one of those mantras we kind of have at, at Baseball HQ that that uh, um, continuously injured players never suddenly get well, and so you may get a great three weeks out of somebody like Stenzel, but then or even a month, a month or two, but uh, you're certainly not going to count on someone like that in your lineup for the entire season. Yeah, this year, 373 at-bats, which is, like I said, uh, maybe a little bit more than we could have expected, considering uh, in past years he's had like 111 in 2021. He missed, you know, four-fifths of the year. And even in 2022, with uh, 373 at-bats, as I mentioned, not a tremendous year. Five home runs, he's got eight stolen bases, which is pretty nice. But when you add it all up, uh, our Baseball HQ valuation system gives him about a $6 five by five value, which to me is like 18th round next year, something like that. And that's only if you're willing to accept the injury risk Uh, in 2019, he only had 375 at bats. If that's his ceiling, then $6 looks like about it. Uh, Yeah, right. You're right. That does look like about it. And it's kind of disappointing for someone who's shown some breakout potential at various times but has never produced at the level at which we, we wanted him to. Yeah, it's an interesting conundrum because when you look at it, you think the temptation, I should say, is to think, wow, 375 at-bats in 2019. He was a $10 player that year. He stole a bunch of bases, I think 14 bases and 12 home runs in that time. And then the temptation is to prorate it out to 600 or 650 at-bats and you think all of a sudden, boy, if this guy plays a full season, I'm looking at 25 homers, 30 stolen bases. His on-base percentage pretty good at 315-ish, uh, 260 is batting average plays nowadays. Nick Senzel could be a terrific player if he could only stay on the field. Right, absolutely. And it, if you tend to, if you want to play it out that way, it sounds like he would be a real, uh, a real get late in a draft. But I don't know that at this point. I don't believe we can count him. Staying on the field. Yeah, that does seem to be the trouble. In 2021, it was a knee injury, according to the summary on uh, Nick Senzel's Batterlink page at BaseballHQ.com. And the other thing that might be a bit of a cautionary note, if you're thinking about Nick Senzel, is that his stolen base percentage 
uh, this year, 62%. So he's getting thrown out 38% of the time. And most ball players do not get green lights on a 62% success rate. Right, definitely. I mean, and, and of course, as, as a player's age, you expect that percentage to, to begin to drop. And so we're seeing it drop down into the 60s. Uh, probably the green light is going to go off if it hasn't already. In Pittsburgh, they got some good news, I guess. Uh, they activated closer David Bednar from the injured list. And boy, I have David Bednar on my TGFBI team, and I could use a few saves. It's a very tight category. Uh, Rick Green covering the story for playing time today, but does Bednar get right back into line for what few saves might be available in Pittsburgh? Manager Derek Shelton did not commit to immediately inserting Bednar into the closer role, but considering the team had a 12.46 ERA, in high leverage situations since August 1st, according to the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, Bednar should be inserted rather quickly into the closer role. He leads the team with 17 saves, had 63 strikeouts in 47 innings pitched. Uh, for a team that's in the midst of a 16-40 record since the All-Star break, uh, remains to be seen how many save situations you'll actually get into as the 2022 season winds down, but he will enter 2023 as the team's closer. One thing I'll draw people's attention to, as I mentioned, he is on one of my fantasy rosters and his full year line looks really good. A 283 ERA, 111 whip, those 17 saves, as you mentioned, and three wins as well, although four losses. He's been about a $10 closer, which is not great. The other cautionary note here is that as he went into that DL stint, he was really having a lot of health trouble and he wasn't pitching at all well. I think his last month's ERA was something like a nine, although he only had a handful of innings, maybe one or two, as I recall. So uh, David Bednar is going to be a mixed blessing. I think he's worth taking a chance on down the stretch here. If, in my position, you know, I get four saves, I could pick up four points kind of thing. And I, in that situation, I have to pretty much play him. But uh, if you're trying to protect your ratios and that kind of thing, maybe take a close look at David Bednar before you pull the trigger, I think. Uh, Milwaukee activated left-hander Aaron Ashby from the 15-day IL. Uh, he started on Tuesday. They optioned right-hander Justin Topa to AAA. Uh, the Milwaukee Brewers could use Aaron Ashby. Yeah, Aaron Ashby is... Uh... His return bolsters rotation that's been plagued by injuries throughout this season. Uh, Ashby showed promise in his rookie season, clearly figures in Milwaukee's rotation plans for 2023 and beyond. Uh, they only had him go two innings in his, uh, in his return. Uh, he pitched well, but uh, obviously going to be cautious with him through the rest of the season. Boy, Milwaukee, I think, is uh, really struggling to try to get into that third wild card spot in the National League. They're two and a half games behind the Phillies right now, and uh, time is running out, so they need to get all hands on deck here. Very definitely. I mean, it's a situation, and they can't afford to have to leave a guy in the game if he begins to struggle. So, uh, uh, if you if you're looking for a place where you you want someone that's going to be yanked quickly if they get in trouble, Milwaukee's certainly a place to look at the moment. In Chicago, the Cubs activated right-hander Keegan Thompson from the 15-day IL and optioned right-hander Jeremiah Estrada back to AAA. Uh, Tom Kephart covers the Cubs for playing time today. What are the effects on the Cubs' rotation with the return of Keegan Thompson? Keegan Thompson was in the midst of a breakout season when he was sidelined. He had previously split time between the rotation and the bullpen. Three scoreless innings, six strikeouts, registering a win in relief, and his September 21st return suggests that he may be back in full health and makes him a viable 
mid to late round target for 2023 and maybe useful for the rest of this season if he's on your waiver wire. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, 397 ERA, 131 whip, about a $5, 5 by 5 season when he went on to the IL. I don't know that I'm going to be running to my waiver wire to see if Keegan Thompson is available, but certainly he's worth a look. The Cubs also got some bad news. Shortstop Nico Horner missed his ninth straight game Wednesday. He's got some problems with his triceps. What are our expectations here as far as Nico Horner for the rest of the season and beyond? Well, Horner has posted a career high in at-bats in 2022, though he has yet to establish his durability in his career. Uh, production has been uh, a career best with his borderline elite contact skill and speed as top assets. Uh, light-hitting utility infielder Zach McKinstry is likely to continue to fill in at shortstop as long as Horner is out. Yeah, I don't think I would want to roster Zach McKinstry unless I literally had no other choice. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're correct about that. And so uh, they're, they're certainly hoping, obviously, that Horner can get back. They have not pushed, put him on the IL, but he has just been missing ball games. Horner's one of those interesting guys from a roster build perspective, Nick, don't you think? Uh, he's, he's a guy that you can roster for, you know, the hit tool. His batting average is pretty dependable, around 300, and he's got some speed, uh, 18 stolen bases this year at a pretty good clip but he's got pretty much no power at all. So what you'd really want to try to do is pair him with somebody like, I don't know, everybody uses this example, but Joey Gallo, a guy who's going to hit a million home runs and, uh, you know, get some decent counting stats. And between the two of them, they make kind of a one decent, decently rounded player. Right. I think that's, that's what you have to do with someone like Horner. I mean, you need that speed in the lineup and, but, uh, but certainly the rest of the counting stats are not likely to be there. And so, as you said, you pair him with a Joey Gallo and, and hopefully get a full, uh, a full solid player out of the two of them together. In Philadelphia, the Phillies activated Zach Wheeler to start the team's game on Tuesday. He was out for about a month, I think, right forearm tendonitis, always a bad thing for a pitcher with the forearm, the elbow, all that kind of stuff. Phil Hurts for playing time today. How did Zach Wheeler look? He was in the midst of a solid season, uh, 326 XERA, 138 BPV, uh, and those numbers were actually negatively impacted by his last two starts, during which he allowed 10 earned runs and 11 innings pitch before he went on the IL. Uh, not expected to go deep initially in, in his return. Uh, he went uh, went four innings, uh, allowed did not allow any earned runs, three strikeouts, uh, no walks. So pitched well in, in his return, may get deeper into the game the next time out. Uh, North Syndergaard is expected to piggyback on Wheeler's start, which he did. And at least for now, Syndergaard has uh, lost his spot in the Philadelphia rotation. That's not surprising given a 4.43 expected earn run average, 78 BPB so far in 2022. So, uh, and over the last 31 days, Syndergaard's numbers are even worse. Uh, 5.09 XCRA, 49 BPB. So they'll be very glad to have Zach Wheeler back at this point. In New York, the center fielder Brandon Nimmo left the team's game on Wednesday evening. He had a left quad tightness problem, and Phil Hertz covers the Mets for playing time today. What do we know now about Brandon Nimmo? Brandon Nimmo was downplaying the injury. The Mets are sending him for imaging. Uh, stay tuned for those results. But Mark Kenya replaced Nimmo in center. One can expect him to get most of the playing time there while Nimmo was out. 
I've always thought of Nimmo as a kind of a speed guy, and here he is with three stolen bases and two caught stealings this year, and then I start realizing maybe I am greatly overestimating his speed, and sure enough, I think he's got, I don't know, 20 stolen bases over six years of play. So I don't know where I got the idea that this guy's a, a speed guy. In fact, when you look at his historical record, he isn't really that terrific of a player. I mean, I think he peaked this year at $19 in value, mostly on counting stats. He had 93 runs scored in that uh, powerful Mets lineup batting at the top of it. Uh, what do you make of Brandon Nimmo as you look at a guy like that? Well, you know, it's, it's a guy, it's one of those guys that uh, he certainly has a, a, a utility on a roster, uh, 14 home runs, 56 RBIs so far this season. So uh, 93 runs scored. So if you want some counting stats, especially in the run scored category, a guy like Nimmo is going to help. But uh, kind of, a, a, for me, a, a medium player. Uh, we've got him listed for the rest of the season as five runs scored, three RBIs, no stolen bases. Uh, so uh, a kind of a mid-range sort of ball player. Uh, if you're hurting somewhere in the outfield, I uh, could have some, some utility. Yeah, the last three seasons, according to Baseball HQ's valuation on Brandon Nimmo, $15, $11, $19, which is a $15 average pretty much. And $15 average puts him in the, what, the 10th, 11th round, something like that. And he seems to have his playing time locked down. I mean, depending on what happens with this quad tightness, but those kind of injuries don't tend to really linger too badly. So it looks like he could be a regular in a pretty good lineup. There's something to be said for that for 2023. Yeah, there certainly is. I, you know, we, we had a, uh, an article earlier this season doing an in-depth analysis on Nemo and the title was Nemo is boring, but useful. And I think that's a very good description of Brandon Nemo. Uh, certainly can be useful, but not a guy who's going to get you really excited about uh, having him on your fantasy team. Yeah, I had a work review once and that's exactly what my boss said. So <laughs> I'll take it, but you know, it's not the, it's not the most glowing recommendation a guy can get. Uh, Colorado placed second baseman Brendan Rogers on the 10 day IL, uh, left hamstring soreness there. And they called up shortstop Ezekiel Tovar, a prospect from AAA on Thursday of this week. Uh, Alan Davison for playing time today. Who loses out if Tovar gets significant playing time? Well, Colorado has been getting a good look at some of their top prospects recently, and this kind of continues that. We had Tovar at number 19 on the 2022 midseason top 50 prospects list, and that's that's fairly high up for that for that list. Uh, he'd just been recently promoted to AAA, hit 318, 13 home runs, 17 stolen bases, a double-A Hartford, and will likely get many of the starts at shortstop for the Rockies as they play out the season. And that will dry up some of the playing time for Alan Trejo, Tovar's a guy that might be worth a look for the last two weeks of the season if he starts out hot, especially playing in Colorado. Yeah, this guy looks really interesting to me, uh, especially that uh, power-speed combination in AA, which sometimes plays pretty well. Uh, Colorado has been really reticent over the years to call up their their prospects, and instead, you know, they go into the free agent pool and they sign, you know, a bunch of guys that you know, your Robbie Grossman type guys, not that he's ever signed there, but players like that, you know, a journeyman. And all of a sudden this year, they called up Elahiris Montero. They called up Michael Tolia, whom uh, Alex Becky covered in Frequent Flyer a week or two ago. So it looks like maybe there's a bit of an organizational philosophical change going on in Colorado where they're saying we can't just keep signing these 
you know, 32 year old has beans or, oh, you know, guys who are on the way out when we have talent that we have to evaluate at, at the major league level. And we're going to take our opportunities to do that. I think this is interesting for fantasy managers who can start looking at Colorado with new interest if they are willing to bring up their young players and give them a shot in the thin air. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, they, they, uh, certainly their, their former strategy of signing these, uh, uh, these uh, uh, more middling kind of uh, of major league ball players and and making their letting their prospects rot in the minors uh, hasn't worked, and so uh, it's good to see them taking a look at them and maybe if they get uh, are impressive enough these last few weeks of the season they'll actually find a home in the Colorado lineup next season. And finally, San Francisco recalled corner infielder Jason Vosler. I have to admit, Nick, never heard of him. They optioned the right-handed pitcher Sean Hella, and they designated outfielder Lewis Brinson for assignment. Gosh, poor Lewis Brinson, another team, another not-too-great audition at the Major League level, and another assignment back to the minors. Uh, Jake Crumpler for playing time today. What's the upshot of all this activity? Well, the, the addition of Vosler isn't very significant, but the subtractions of, uh, uh, and, uh, of Heya and, and uh, Brinson are much more surprising. Uh, Vosler is likely to see time only against right-handed pitching, but won't have a deep, clear platoon role at any one position. Uh, sporadic playing time so far this season. As for Brinson, uh, his GFA comes as a surprise because he was recently acquired less than a month ago. He had excellent spurts of excellence, but ultimately batted just 167 in 39 plate appearances, three homers, a 35.9% strikeout rate. Uh, Heya has been up and down all season, seemed to have a solid role as a bulk reliever, recently went four frames of two-run ball with three strikeouts out of the bullpen. So uh, clearly the uh, the clear-cut long man in the relief core now is, is Gerald Cotton. Boy, I remember Gerald Cotton too, uh, how the mighty have fallen. I guess it was never a case of the mighty falling, but uh, Gerald Cotton was quite a prospect in his time. And um, he's still in the big leagues. He's still making big league dough. So I guess can't feel too bad for him. Uh, Nick, thanks a million for helping us out this week. And of course, all season long, it's been a real delight to talk with you every Friday. And uh, I hope you have a great off season and get ready to come back running and raring for uh, 2023 when we get started around pitchers and catchers. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and columnist Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Happy to be here Friday. Is this our, happy to be here, Patrick. Is this our last Friday of the season? Yes, it is. Uh, you and Todd and I will get together, I think, after the end of the season, as we've discussed, and have a round table edition to wrap up the season in full. But, uh, yep, for medical reasons, I can't do a show next week. And uh, I've already commented earlier that uh, everybody who's got colon cancer in their family should see their doctor about arranging a colonoscopy. It's not fun, but it's uh, really, really important. So, uh, speaking of really, really important, Baltimore. <laughs> <laughs> See what I did there? Baltimore plans to scale back the playing time of second baseman Rugnet Odor for the remainder of the season. Uh, probably not a big part of their future as they look at it. Uh, Ryan Williams covering the story for playing time today. What's going on in Baltimore with this move? Yeah, you know, if we think back to Odor signing with the Orioles in the preseason, he was, we sort of thought of him as someone who's going to take up space here while the, uh, 
prospects arrived, right? And somehow, despite giving Ruffin Odor nearly 400 at-bats this season, the Orioles were pretty competitive for most of the year, right? But now that they've, uh, you know, they're really hanging on the, the outer fringes of the uh, wildcard race here, they're going to uh, take a, start taking a look at some of those future pieces. This is particularly good news for Taryn Vavra and Kyle Stowers, um, both of whom were in the lineup on Wednesday night and figured to get more playing time over the last uh, week and a half here as they sort of lay the groundwork for next year. Uh, Stowers is probably the more interesting prospect and outfielder, sort of a prototypical four-category right fielder kind of guy, big arm, good power, swing and miss in there. But he also has really good um, strike zone control. You know, he'll take a walk. So, you know, that creates sort of a maybe 350 on base percentage 20 25 home run ceiling there which is which is a pretty pe- pr- pretty uh helpful piece as the Orioles try to uh you know build a long-term contender here so Stowers is one to watch Vavra a little less so he's more of a speed as his primary skill but he's not nearly as highly rated as a prospect so uh you know obviously we pay attention to anybody who's got uh stolen base potential but I don't think Vavra is as big part as big a part of their future as Stowers is. And in any case, uh, Stowers might also have a bit of stolen base potential. The uh, write-up in Baseball HQ's org reports on Baltimore uh, talked about the fact that he's got quite a lot of just core athletic ability, and that can often translate into, you know, it's not going to be a 40 stolen base profile, but there's a pathway to getting stolen base success in fantasy baseball by picking them up, you know, eight here, nine there throughout your lineup without having to pay for the, you know, uh, mile straws of the world. Yeah, that's exactly right. He, across multiple levels of the minors last year in a full season, uh, he had eight stolen bases and four caught stealings, which is, uh, you, you know, nothing to sneeze at. Like you say, you can cobble together a decent stolen base presence on your fantasy team by, getting your stolen bases 10 at a time like that. And he'll contribute that as opposed to, you know, I'm not equating him to Jordan Alvarez, but to pick somebody out of the top, off the top of my head, who's going to give you a zero in the stolen base category. He's not that, you know, Stowers is not that right. So yeah, that's a, it's a different thing. And, you know, we'll talk about this more in the off season or maybe even in the uh, season wrap up episode with Todd, but you know, we've got all these changes coming to number of pickoff throws and size of the base and everything next year that might, that are designed at least to unlock the running game a little bit. So an athletic smart base runner like Stowers may be the profile of guy who's going to benefit from that a little bit more than some others. We'll wait and see, but that's, uh, that's certainly going to be a topic of conversation over the uh, long cold winter as it were. Yes, it certainly is. It already has been a lot of podcasts and a lot of touting that goes on on websites around the fantasy baseball industry have already been speculating about what the likely increase of stolen bases means in the stolen base category. And the two arguments seem to be, well, on the one hand, it's going to be easier to steal bases, so there'll be more of them, which makes the big stolen base guys, the mile straws and those kind of one category guys less valuable because there's more bags to go around. And the other argument is no, 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 the, there's a million stolen bases. So you need even more stolen bases to be competitive in the category than you used to. I think I go with option one. I think if, if there's more guys getting 10 stolen bases, it's easier to put together a successful stolen base season than it was in times past when you couldn't find 20 guys who got 10 stolen bases. 
Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I think my biggest, you know, not, not to divert the entire conversation, but I think my biggest concern or con to the changes here is speed, you know, opening up stolen bases is great, but will teams shift back to that philosophy? I think the problem that we still have that might continue to tamp down stolen bases and minimize the impact of this is the reason you steal second base is to try to be able to score on a single, right? And if there are no singles in the game, and there really are no singles in the game these days, then I'm not sure that even at the traditional 75% success rate clip level that moving from first to second is enough of an advantage if the next batter is still going to be hanging one of the three true outcomes anyway. And until we kind of get that problem under control, then, you know, it's not going to be the, uh, you know, single or right scores the runner kind of deal. Although maybe the shift will be enough to do that. And in conjunction with that, the, uh, the other changes of uh, defensive positioning aligned with the stolen bases might be enough to, uh, to, to spring that loose. It'll all be, um, it'll, it'll all be interesting to watch, but this is one of the problems with introducing <laughs> multiple variables into your study at the same time, right? Is trying right. to figure out the correlated outcomes of all of this stuff is going to be pretty messy. Well, again, not to hijack the conversation towards a, a discussion of the stolen base issue, but I wonder if there's going to be an increase in steals of third as well. You get a guy to steal second, yep. why not third? Because uh, third base is statistically easier to do than stealing second. And that, I guess that's one thing. So you could then score a guy on a sacrifice fly. And the other thing is, I wonder if sooner or later, some team that can't afford to pay Aaron judge $400 million a year or whatever it's going to work out to cost or any of the big, big bangers who can reliably provide those home runs. I wonder if one of those Kansas city type teams or, a, you know, an Oakland type team is going to say, you know what, we're going to put together the uh, kind of the mid eighties St. Louis Cardinals, you know, a lot of, a lot of base hits, a lot of base running, a lot of manufacturing runs rather than standing around waiting for somebody to jack one into the right field seats. And I think it would be interesting if somebody did that because I believe it could work. For a more recent example, go back to the 2014-15 Kansas City Royals, right? I mean, that's pretty much how they. That's pretty yes. much how they. Maybe not as ex, not as extreme with the stolen bases, but you're right. You know, line drives, balls in play, take the extra base, big bullpen in the back, and sure. I mean, I think we've seen a recent example that could work, and uh, these rule changes seem, if anything, designed to make that path even easier to go down. And in fact, Kansas City looks like it might be the team that's looking at doing that. Uh, I, one of their call-ups, Pasquantino, I know is is kind of touted as a big power guy, but he's the 350 on-base guy, more importantly, even at the major league level. He, and he's getting on base a lot, hitting the odd home run uh, here and there, which doesn't hurt. But just getting guys on bases, pushing them around, I think that... Uh, I think somebody's going to try it and I hope they do because if it's successful, yeah. then it'll be copied and maybe we get back to a game that has a lot more interest in it than, you know, look, another walk, oh, a strikeout. Oh, let's sit around waiting for somebody to bash one over the fence. It's unentertaining baseball. And let's not forget the mid eighties Cardinals also still had Jack Clark too. So, you know, you, you have to be able to hit the ball over the fence every now and then. <laughs> and, and Willie McGee could actually hit a ball over a fence sure. once in a while. And I'm not saying that, you know, if you have a guy who can hit 30 home runs, you bench him just because he can't steal yeah. bases. But I think maybe a, a, 
an optimized lineup might have two of those guys in it sure. surrounded by all kinds of rabbits who can get on the bases and, and start running rampant on there and causing all kinds of trouble for the opponents. Uh, let's go to Minnesota. Bad news for uh, starting pitcher Sonny Gray goes on the 15-day IL with a hamstring problem. Rick Green covers the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. I have to ask you, Ray, is a Sonny Gray injury actually considered news anymore? Yeah, it's a, great, it's a great question. I think every time we've talked about Sonny Gray this year, and it's been a few times since this is his third IL stint of the year, you know, the bottom line of Sonny Gray, which I think we'll probably have to write into his forecaster box this year, is he's either good or he's hurt, right? And, you know, we've had guys, you know, who have tra- who have rode this path for years, you know, younger Brett Anderson comes to mind. Um, but, you know, he's earned 11, you know, in Gray's case, he's earned $11 in 5 by 5 value this year, a very good, 308 ERA that's you know mostly supported by a expected ERA that's more up in the mid threes, but he's only thrown 120 innings in between this, these three IL stints and he's probably done for the year now. So 120 innings is all we get. Um, this, you know, a hamstring injury isn't something that's going to hurt him, continue to bother him into 2023, but it does cause some short-term problems for the twins as they play out the string. Um, Ronnie Enriquez looks like he might get at least the first start replacing gray. And, you know, when we look forward to Sonny Gray's future value, we've got to tamp down the innings projection because, you know, 120 might be on the low range of how many innings we expect from him in a year, but 120 to 140, 50 is probably the right range to be projecting him in going forward because he always gets shelved for a few weeks at a time by stuff like this. And that creates an interesting valuation question for people looking at Sonny Gray in the draft next year. Where do you set that floor based on the likelihood of injury or the probability of injury? And if he's an $11 pitcher in 120 innings, uh, I talked about this with Nick earlier in regard to another player. It's so tempting to prorate that 120 innings out to 180 innings, and you think to yourself, well, if he's a you know $11 player in 120, then if you have that again, he's a $16, $17 pitcher if he gets 180 innings, and I'm going to place a, a bid in an auction or, or soak up a you know 11th round draft pick on that potential, and it seems like if Sonny Gray has taught us anything, that that potential is always intriguing but seldom realized. That's a huge trap to fall into. And if anything, the rise of openers and six-man rotations and creative ways of managing starting pitching have an effect on that because even in terms of over-projecting Gray, you can at least assume that you know, we've Todd, Todd will talk all the time about this on his appearances on the show, but you can at least assume that like you're going to put somebody else in the roster spot for the weeks that Gray is hurt, right? Um, but the problem is with fewer true starting pitchers of a certain quality level around the league, you're not as able to find someone who could actually provide ratio help and counting stats off the waiver wires. So it's not necessarily a good assumption that you'll be able to get a quality replacement for gray in terms of you know somebody to plug into your roster spot when he's on the il maybe you could find a starter who's going to come with ratio risk and give you some strikeouts and maybe a win or maybe you've got a default to choosing the safe middle reliever who can give you good ratios but won't get the volume to get you the caves but either way it's a downgrade from what a you know what what a star from sunny gray would give you in a given week so you do have to discount that the 120 140 innings doesn't mean you've just got a blank check to fill out the other missing 40 or whatever it is 
Yeah, that's right. And you also don't have a, a blank check to assume that even if Gray is healthy, as you said, if the presuming that he's with the twins, then they look at it and they say, we'd like to keep this guy healthy for a whole year, especially if we have playoff aspirations. And all of a sudden, even if he's totally healthy, doesn't mean he's going to get 180 innings because they may rest him a start here and there. They may target 140 innings as his ceiling for a regular season. And even if he doesn't miss a day on the IL, you still only get 140 innings out of the deal. You know, they were sort of already doing that this year, you know, even with the, uh, you know, the missed IL time on top of that, he's only throw, he's only facing about 20 batters a game. Well, you know, I, I think our threshold to usually even consider someone as, you know, carrying a starter pitching workload is about 18 and he's barely over that. So they were not, you know, by any means, you know, stretching him. Uh, I'm scanning his pitch counts, and he did not throw any more than 95 pitch, 96 pitches in a start all year. So they were trying to coddle him, and it still led to the three IL stints. I mean, you're right, though. If they coddle him even more, trying to find a, a sweet spot there, now he becomes a you know five and dive guy, or in every you know, or 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 he starts skipping turns, or they do six man rotation kind of stuff to protect him, and you know the the result is. You just keep losing more volume in a different, in a different, but perhaps equally frustrating way, right? Yeah, that's the problem in a nutshell. And I think that's something that's going to get more and more interesting as we move forward in over the next couple of years and teams start figuring out how they're going to manage all of these situations. And fantasy leagues are going to have to look at their rules and figure out how they're going to respond to the situation. I mean, if you've got a, a league, a fairly standard league has a 900,000 inning minimum, you know, where are you going to get it? As you said, you, you have, you know, a limited number of starters and then you have the injuries and you have the Hobson's choice of, do I take the bit of volume I'm going to get from a bad starter and get punished on my decimals? Or do I, you know, put in Adam Simber and, and get a vulture win here and there, but I only get, you know, three strikeouts a week and lose ground in that category. And I've been banging the tub for uh, on this topic for ages, but I think the answer is our fantasy rosters have to add more pitchers. You know, we have yeah. to go to 12 and 11 or maybe 13 and 10 or something like that because the fantasy rosters just don't reflect the reality of modern pitching. And, and uh, you know, I know it's a challenge and it's a game and, and it's just a way for – it affects all of us equally. So if all of our decimals are going to go up from – you know, a 350 team ERA to a four and and everybody's doing it, then there's, it's a relative thing. So it doesn't really matter, I suppose, but it's starting to look less and less like real baseball, which is the, you know, the conceit I think that some of us have when we play this game is that we're, you know, taking Heim Bloom's place as a general manager of a real team, ignoring all the things that we do about it that are not like a real team. And this is one of them. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, there's a whole, uh, spectrum of rule changes you can talk about and you know the, but the rule changes that make the most sense kind of differ based on your league size and format etc in some cases sure adding more pitcher spots makes sense in some cases um you're gonna get down to the point where they're all, the only pitchers that are available are the ones nobody wants to roster <laughs> in other cases like mixed leagues you know there's certainly options there but you're you're right about you know making the minimums i mean another thing you you know you sort of need to do in a lot of leagues is create the ability to replace at least injured pitchers in the middle of the week right because right. when you're 
pitcher goes on the DL on a Tuesday and you just got to stare at the little icon next to him for the next six days before you can do anything about it. You're, you know, to your point, you're losing ground everywhere at that point. And that's really, you know, and the way the IL gets used that happens to you, you know, as many weeks in a season as it doesn't. And now those lost days and outings have a, uh, have a real impact on your ability to compete across those categories. And, you know, there's not a lot of skill involved in just staring at that IL icon, like we said. And speaking of IL icons, uh, or speaking of icons, I guess in Seattle, uh, the news that a playoff chasing team doesn't want to hear superstar and icon in waiting, I guess, center fielder Julio Rodriguez left the Mariners game on Thursday night with uh, lower back tightness. Alan Davison covering the story for playing time today at baseballhq.com. Rodriguez has already missed three games over the past weekend with the same lower back ailment. What's the latest that we've heard? Yeah, so he's going for x-rays and MRI, which it's hard to tell how concerned we should be about that. He is, of course, the, you know, multi-hundred million dollar face of the franchise now, and they are, you know, still competing for a playoff spot. So there are a lot of, we really need you in the lineup versus we really want to make sure we take care of you for the long term. And certainly, you know, still, I don't know if he's legitimately still a teenager or if he's turned 20 yet but you know at this age um you know it's not good to hear about somebody starting with any kind of chronic back problem back problems not to say these are chronic just yet but you know back problems at 19 you can only imagine what they're going to be you know into his 30s etc so you can understand seattle wanting to be very cautious about this for now jared kelnick's back up oh stop us if you heard that before um he's been and he Stop us if you heard the the punchline too. He's actually been hitting the ball at AAA again. Uh, you know, I think at some point we're going to have to start asking ourselves whether Jared Kelnick is just a uh, is a quad A player. But I don't think personally I'm there yet. But he is again raking in AAA, hitting 350 with uh, four homers and four stolen bases over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and he, Sam Haggerty, and Dylan Moore are probably all going to try to cover center field for as long as Leo is out. I noticed the Mariners also called up catcher Luis Torrens from AAA and sent down uh, Taylor Trammell and uh, Jake Lamb. Bit of a surprise to me, designated for assignment. I guess I shouldn't have been that surprised, but what about Torrens and the demotions? Yeah, apparently this was just, uh, you know, Torrens had been sent down. He was part of the, uh, you know, we thought he would have at least sort of a half share of the catching role to start the year, but he kind of played himself out of that after struggling really uh, right out of the gate back in April and May. Uh, but he's back now to provide depth and catcher as uh, Kirk Casale, I think, is about to go on paternity leave. So he might miss this weekend early next week, and Torrens is there for uh, to to, uh, to back up Cal Raleigh while Casale is out, it appears. And meanwhile, Jake Lamb, I think, kind of living on borrowed time anyway, wasn't he? Yeah, you and I talked about the Carlos Santana, Evan White, you know, somebody in the somebody of the uh DH spot in Seattle needed to start hitting their weight and Wham was another one who really wasn't doing that hitting a a buck 67 with a 525 OPS with the Mariners. So, I think the Mariners had seen enough and it was time to uh find somebody else who could uh, you know, not occupy that DH spot effectively. 
And a minute ago, you mentioned Jared Kalanick, and where have we heard this before? Hey, guess what? Edward Olivares is back in Kansas City's outfield for the millionth time, it seems. And he and third baseman slash outfielder Nate Eaton are getting real regular playing time at Kansas City. Uh, Ryan Williams covers the Royals for playing time today. So we have playing time going up for Olivares and Nate Eaton, playing time going down for whom? Yeah, so it does seem like sort of a long look at Oliveris, at least by Edward Oliveris' standards, right? He's um, started five games in a row since he's gotten recalled. Eaton's been in the lineup every night in that stretch as well. Uh, Oliveris in a corner outfield. Eaton's been at third base. Um, all of the, We basically shaved playing time from all of the rest of the outfielders, uh, except MJ Melendez, who was also a fixture in the lineup. But that means Hunter Dozier, Michael Taylor are playing more halftime, along with Kyle Isbell, Drew Waters. It's really Oliver is in one spot, and those four guys, Dozier, Taylor, Isbell, Waters, are taking two of the other spots. Meanwhile, Eaton's covering third base at the expense of Nicky Lopez, who seems to be taking at least this week off and we'll see if that extends for the, uh, the rest of the year. It kind of really should. I know Nicky Lopez is one of those guys, uh, you like to have on a real baseball team cause he can play almost anywhere and he seems to be indestructible, but he really doesn't get a whole lot done with the bat. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, better fantasy player than real life in terms of the stolen base value he provides. Although, you know, the, the flip side of that is, you know, decent defensively around, you know, with versatility around the infield, which has real life utility. But uh, I think we've seen enough of Nicky Lopez after the last, uh, you know, getting very regular playing time over the last few years that uh, we, we sort of know what he is and there's no, uh, there's no hidden level still to be unlocked there. And we should say if it's stolen bases you're looking for, uh, Nate Eaton had his 10th the other night versus the Twins and uh, had a couple of hits. I don't think he's a hitter, and I wonder if he's ever going to get on base often enough. But for the short run, if you're looking for stolen bases down the stretch here, you, you know, one of those situations where you have get four stolen bases between now and the end and you pick up three points in the category, and Nate Eaton could be worth a look, especially if you're struggling at third base as so many of us are. In Oakland, the A's placed outfielder Ramon Laureano on the 10-day IL, and they promoted corner infielder Jordan Diaz. Jake Crumpler for the playing time today coverage. What's going on with the playing time in Oakland? Yeah, we remember that Laureano started the year late after his suspension, and now he ends it early uh, with a hamstring strain that uh, I think very likely means we will not see him again until 23. Um the good news is that Jordan Diaz probably gets a look to uh, make his debut in Loriano's place. He's a 22-year-old, uh, bats right-handed. He had 326 with 19 homers uh, across two levels in the minors this year. This year. So um, on an Oakland system that A, isn't that deep, and B, it feels to me at least like we've kind of seen everyone already. Uh, you know, they turned over one more, you know, interesting prospect here. So we get a look at him over the next couple of weeks. Uh probably at first base, although maybe at third as well. Um, they also put uh, Sam Mole on the 15-day uh, IL with the uh, left-handed reliever as a strained left shoulder, so you would imagine his year is over too. Uh, Jared Koenig took his roster spot, for those of you who are in the very deep leagues. Very deep leagues indeed. Uh, finally, Ray, Chris Olson covers the American League East in our Playing Time Tomorrow roster columns. Uh, these are terrific columns, by the way. A real 
highlight for me at baseballhq.com is this forward-looking analysis of all the lineups once a week in all the divisions. This is really excellent stuff for forward planning. And Chris looked at the pitching situations for real forward planning in 2023 for all five American League East teams. And the one I found most interesting was in Boston, uh, where Chris notes the Red Sox face the prospect of replacing three starters who have supplied 316 innings so far this year in 2022, and they're all eligible to be free agents, right-handers Nady Evaldi and Michael Waka and left-hander Rich Hill. You're up there in Boston. You're following the Red Sox. Where do we see the Boston pitching staff headed in 2023, do you think? Yeah, it's really hard to tease that out right now. Like you say, I you know am fairly close to the situation, and I'm not sure I have a great idea either. You know, it, it, starting with you, you mentioned the the three free agents, and it's not totally clear which of any of those will be back and under what terms. I'm sure there'll be negotiations, probably with all three, but whether the Red Sox are willing to commit to Waka, who had a very good year, or Ivaldi, who is good when healthy, but that hasn't happened much of late or Rich Hill, who is almost my age, which is, uh, which is saying something. Um, but you know, you might see at least one of those guys back, but you know, there are still more rotation spots to fill. The most, the most interesting question to me is what they decide to do with Garrett Whitlock and Tanner Houck. You re- you'll remember that both of those guys spent time both in the rotation and the bullpen this year, both in the back end of the bullpen at times, but both end this year injured Hauk with a uh, disc problem in his back slash neck and Whitlock with a, uh, with a hip problem. Supposedly both of those guys want another chance to start. And why wouldn't you, from a financial perspective, you get paid more as a starter in the long term. but can they carry that load? Will the Red Sox be willing to commit to them in a rotation when it's not clear that they can be fixtures there for more than a couple of months at a time. Can they plant, can they afford to plan around that? Or is it better to just plug them into the bullpen where they're both real assets and go try to figure out the starting pitching from, you know, from other options. That's kind of what the Red Sox need to figure out this winter. On top of that, the other guys returning to the rotation, aren't exactly bastions of health either. Nick Pavetta is probably the closest thing to a sure thing. After that, Chris Sale, who made it to Boston for all of about 12 minutes this summer um, between rehabbing from his arm injury and then having the, the line drive off his hand comes back. He's under contract for a few more years, so he's certainly part of that picture. But how much can you count on with him? Uh, James Paxton is as injury-prone as Sale, if not more. Um, but he has a $4 million player option, so he could decide to come back um, and give it another go with the Red Sox uh, if, if he thinks that's a better deal than um, than what they than what he can get somewhere else. So that's a heck of a lot of question marks. And then after all of those categories of injured swingmen and free agents, you get into the kids they have. Brian Bayo is looked somewhat interesting down the stretch here. They also have Josh Winkowski, Cutter Crawford, who have been in and out of the rotation at various times this year as the injuries have dictated. So there's a lot of bodies. Which ones are back and in what roles? I can't even take a great guess at right now. I was thinking about Paxton exercising his option and just because he does, doesn't mean the Red Sox are obliged to let him play. I mean, they just have to pay him the 4 million or whatever it is that the option calls for, and they can still cut him loose if they don't believe that they're going to get any kind of value. And I think they have 
$13 million options uh, on the team side for uh, 2023 and maybe beyond. So I think Paxton's really an up-in-the-air thing. And uh, as far as comparing him with Sale on the injury front, goodness, I think Paxton's the hands-down winner, if you want to call it that, or loser on on the injury front. He just seems to never have been really healthy. I've Interested in uh, Bayo, as you said, a 284 ERA, uh, 130 whip is not that great. His strikeout to walk is not that great, but I think there's some possible talent there. Now, let's assume that Hauk and Whitlock move into the rotation. That seems to leave a whole bunch of openings then in the bullpen. It does, and, you know, I I, I feel like the guy who keeps uh, stepping on the rake in the backyard, but, uh, you know, if you're trying to figure out who the winner is if this bullpen gets thinned out by how can Whitlock move into the rotation. Matt Barnes has actually looked pretty good since he came back off the IL in August. You remember he started the year kind of not ready to close, but they seemed like they really wanted to give him the job and he just he just couldn't demonstrate the effectiveness needed. And his struggles go back to uh the sticky stuff ban last summer he had really lost effectiveness i mean from last summer to this august for like you know about a year he was all but completely lost in the woods there were some injuries mixed in there as well but you know even when healthy and on the roster he was just getting smoked but he's really looked better for the last month or so so if that's a stepping off point to the beginning of him getting you know reclaiming a role in the back end of that bullpen with John Schreiber, who's probably who's without a doubt been the Red Sox most consistently effective reliever this year. That's two pieces of a bullpen, but you know, as we're saying here, we sort of need five or six more before we can actually call this bullpen good or at least or even competent. Ordinarily over the last few years or after the last many years, we just assume that Boston, if they have roster problems or roster gaps, that they're just going to stand up and throw money at it. And is that still the case up in Boston? Are they still being free spenders? Do you expect them to be aggressive in the free agent market this offseason? Or have they come to a new sort of financial realization that they want to be a little more careful with the nickels and dimes? Well, you know, they have this sort of problem that the um – you know, they're still spending money. Their payroll is, they're actually one of the four teams paying the luxury tax this year. They're just throwing money at the wrong guys, right? And some, and a lot of that predates Heim Bloom's tenure as GM. They've, you know, they're paying, you know, Chris Sale an exorbitant amount of money to pitch six innings for the year, uh, that sort of thing. That really starts to hamstring your budget. And they have big top end but issues to talk about this summer, this winter. Uh, Xander Bogarts is widely expected to opt out of his contract. So they're either going to need to re sign him for a lot of money or get into the shortstop market with Carlos Correa, Trey Turner, those kind of guys who are available this winter. Um, so that's one big expense and, and that you figure they're going to get him going to throw some money at. And Raphael Devers is a year away from free agency and, you know, they really need to do something to lock him up for the long term. So they have a couple of pricey items that, you know, if they don't spend money on it, then you're right. They're going to be a lot of questions about, whether Boston is really the uh, free spending team anymore that they have traditionally been thought of as. And before we go, Ray, uh, what's the latest from First Pitch Arizona? You're middle of planning. We've got a pricing deadline coming up. Uh, exciting times, six weeks away. Yeah, we're six weeks away. We're, we can't wait. Uh, we have, as you say, another deadline. Our best price right now um, is available through the end of the month, which is next Friday. That's uh, 349 for the weekend. Uh, you can 
get that uh, by clicking on the big First Pitch Arizona logo on our the right side of the Baseball HQ homepage. I think this weekend we will have the uh, the 2022 uh, program up with a list of sort of the actual speakers and sessions. The speaker list is mostly up there now, but you can see uh, the actual topics we're planning to cover as we've been uh, working behind the scenes to develop, to develop the agenda. So um, I know a bunch of people um, are anxious to see that. So we'll have that up soon. Uh, leading up to that deadline next week. And, you know, you can still jump on flights aren't, you know, flights are another consideration, of course, but the, uh, the earlier you jump on those, the better you do. So uh, the hotel room still has, the hotel still has rooms available. So uh, it's not too late to jump off the fence. If uh, a weekend in November watching baseball sounds like your idea of a good time. And uh, it certainly is for me. And of course, something that's going to be new at first pitch Arizona this year is on Saturday, we get the, uh, fall stars home run derby. And then on Sunday we get the all-star game and there's going to be a game at least on Thursday as well. And Friday too. Yeah. So we, there's a afternoon game on Thursday for those who get there early enough. Uh, there's a Thursday night game right across the street from the hotel at Sloan park where we will do hold our annual welcome reception. And then we get two games on Friday and we get uh, the home run derby on Saturday and the fall stars game on Sunday. So it is a packed weekend. If you like watching baseball, this is the place to be. Ray, thanks very much for the update and thanks very much for all of your work during the season. And I'll talk to you again, I guess, in a couple of weeks time when we wrap up the season officially and put a bow on everything with our roundtable edition with Todd Zola. Yes, absolutely. Thanks uh, for having me on all year. It's certainly been fun and uh, I will look forward to the wrap up show with Todd. It's always a treat. Ray Murphy is co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com and a columnist at the site, and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's our second feature expert interview with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper in the Bus podcast. Paul's coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, I want to remind you of another great article at BaseballHQ.com. In Playing Time Tomorrow roster news, analyst Dan Marcus looks at all five teams in the National League Central, including rotation assessments in Cincinnati, Chicago, and Milwaukee. Playing Time Tomorrow, just another great resource for you at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our second feature expert interview with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Paul Sporer, welcome back to the show. It's been a while. It has been, Patrick, but thank you so much for having me on. And uh, I, I like kind of bringing home, you know, bringing it down the stretch here uh, as one of the final episodes of the regular season. For this show, it is the final episode of the regular season, so oh, I appreciate you being okay. yeah. So you're uh, you're setting the the standard for next year, I guess. Although we will have a roundtable edition with Ray Murphy and Todd Zola after the season, talk about what went on and what to look forward to next year. Before we started this official recorded interview part, we were talking about the olden days, and you mentioned that you maybe, I don't know if it was your very first league, but it sounds like it might have been, with your dad. You and your dad were playing in an AL-only 10 team. Was that you guys as partners or as opponents, or how no. did that work? opponents, and get my mom in there too, because she was in it as well. It was uh, started at my dad's work in 87, I believe, 87 or 88. I joined a few years later. I want to say 93 might've been my first season. So 12, when I was 12 years old and um, yeah, all three of us were in it all very competitive. 
and all ended up by by the time the league folded, all ended up with three titles. So nobody had the edge over the other. My mom got a big lead early. She won two before my dad had won one and before I was even in the league. So she had the big edge. My dad caught up and then I caught up. But uh, yeah, AL only 10 team stats via the USA Today. Um, every other week at times, if my dad got too busy at work and they couldn't compile the numbers, just a different era. And listen, I love the information age that we're in. There's so much greatness in it, being able to get everything that you want all the time and watching all the games. But there was something pretty fun about like uh, relishing the fact that we could listen to Tom Hamilton, uh, Cleveland uh, Indian at the time games on the radio picked up via Detroit on clear summer nights while we were watching the Tigers on mute and the bonus was getting lucky that if WGN was showing the White Sox instead of the Cubs because they showed a lot more Cubs than White Sox. So, yeah, I'm old, but uh, I've been playing for a very long time, and that AL-10 team only only is where I cut my teeth. Well, I have to tell you that my first fantasy league started in, I'm going to guess, 1991, 92, so around the same time as you, but I was a lot older than 12 years old. I can tell you I had finished university and I was working at the time, so yeah, we both go back a fair ways. Now, when you're playing in a league with your mom and your dad, is there any problems with collusion? Does anybody accuse you of making sweetheart deals or anything like that? No, because and we ended up not really trading all that much because we didn't want any of that. Uh, there was another husband and wife in there, and and we didn't really see anything like that with. And, and they were successful too. They had successful teams. Um, they were called Jim and Sue, and Sue had Pedro Martinez, and it was a keeper league, so she was always in in competition for years. And Jim was a very good fantasy manager. So no, uh, we really didn't have issues with that. The trades that we had were pretty pretty even up you rarely saw a lower tier team trading unless it was a clear keeper situation and then that was easy to justify and say hey yeah they are trading with a lower tier team but it is a keeper and this guy's a clear keeper so we never really ran into issues like that it was guys from my dad's work and uh, you know a couple wives in there my my dad's wife obviously my mom and then uh, sue as i mentioned and everyone was pretty chill and then as we got into the internet age i started to bring people in these are my friends and and colleagues from the uh from the industry and so again no real issues these were these were bona fide fantasy players that didn't want any bs they just wanted to play some fantasy you know when you talk about listening to games on radio it seems it seems anachronistic now because i don't know if anybody even does listen to it on an actual over-the-air radio i know lots of people listen on oh, sirius yeah, xm right yeah i listen but, on my phone but i still do listen to them oh i do too i like listening to to baseball on the radio it's just a different kettle of fish, but, but I was telling you that when I was in my early leagues, a buddy of mine and I used to drive around in his mom's old Chrysler with a tube radio in it. And we would find, drive around until we could find a spot where we could get the signal from WCCO Minneapolis relayed through their stations in Williston and other places in Northern Montana. And we would find the the WCCO coverage of the twins and Herb Carneal, I'll never forget that guy's name. And we would sit there at, you know, nine 30, 10 o'clock at night, dark stars are out and, and just listen to the the voice coming through that squeaky hissy sort of background and, and you're just far, far away listening to a ball game. And again, we don't have that anymore. And in a lot of ways, I think it's too bad. We don't. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, um, you know, it's, it's okay to be nostalgic for, for times of yore. And, uh, I think things like that regarding baseball are, are what get me the most in terms of being like, Oh, I do miss certain aspects of it, including radio baseball games. And of course, I've talked about here on the show about the like antiquated way we used to get our stats. We were one of the first leagues that I ever heard of that didn't 
always compile our own. We hired, uh, it was called All Star Stats. They were out of Binghamton, New York, I think, or somewhere. And uh, they would fax our weekly stats to a printer that we had hired. And then one of the guys in the league was a cab driver, and he would drive over there on Tuesday afternoon. He'd pick up the 14 or 15 copies of the stats, drive them back to his house. He had attached a second mailbox onto his house, which made his wife thrilled. I'm sure you can imagine. And then at two o'clock on Tuesday afternoon, the whole league would descend on this guy's house, run up to the mailbox, grab our copy of the stats, and then his wife wouldn't have us on the property. So we would just go down to the sidewalk and stand around on the sidewalk and, hey, look what I did. Oh, this guy. Oh, can you imagine? Because it was just really exciting. Yeah. And of course, a lot of trade talk gets going because you're all gathered in one spot. Yeah. It was terrific. And I think that's another thing that we lose when we have, you know, we're all playing in multiple leagues and we don't really know any of the guys we're in oftentimes because we're, you know, we sign on through Yahoo or ESPN leagues or whatever, and they're just names in the ether as far as we're, we're concerned. True. And that, that part of it is something that I think I miss and that a lot of younger players probably are never going to experience, which is kind of, um, I don't know, I, I get wistful for it. I don't, don't necessarily think it's better, but it was certainly fun and different and, and really interesting. Uh, how did you go from playing fantasy baseball to deciding to become a analyst and get paid for thinking about the game? Well, just being a big internet dweeb, um, you know, getting on, reading a bunch of stuff, seeing that people were you know, just putting their baseball thoughts. I, I've been a sports obsessed person from day one. My parents, you know, I mentioned my mom played, like they both played fantasy baseball. They both enjoyed sports betting on football, huge sports fans. So it's in my blood from day one. I'm getting on this internet thing, seeing that people are just kind of putting their baseball thoughts out there. And I'll tell you who he's still around. And this was the guy that was like, holy crap, what he's doing is so cool. It was Aaron Gleeman, who a lot of people will know, especially Twins fans. And like I said, still doing it, still killing it in the game. He had his blog and uh, it was just so cool to see what he was doing and, and how he was growing. And it wasn't really fantasy. It was mostly Twins related. But again, it was something that was just super impressive. Uh, to watch him grow. And I was like, I, I want to be in the, the business of talking about baseball in some capacity. It was mostly writing blogs were the thing back then. And so I just kind of started writing at little different outlets, had some people that, uh, that were into it. Mark Haverty was a, a, a person who was always starting up little ventures and, and got me involved in a lot of different stuff. Helped me get my first magazine article, which was really cool to see my name in print. Another thing that kids probably don't care about as much as, uh, as you and I would really being with <laughs> a, a magazine. Although, you know, HQ uh, with the forecaster that still comes out, all of us of all ages still love getting that. Even if you're a hardcore internet person, we all need to get our actual books. So, uh, yeah, so it just started there, getting little gigs, writing, doing it in my spare time. And then eventually, uh, years down the road, I was like, maybe I could do this as as a whole thing and uh, ended up taking that plunge and uh, freelancing a whole bunch. Rotowire and Fangraphs were two spots that I was writing the most. And I've told the story a couple of times, but literally in the same week, they both offered full-time, which is crazy because it's so hard to find a full-time role in this industry. So to get two offered at the same time was nuts. It also induced a lot of anxiety though, because I didn't want to tell anybody, no, I didn't want to disappoint anybody. Right. But much to their, uh, you know, unexpected or not, not unexpectedly, I should say, knowing the two Great, the greatness of these two guys, Derek Van Riper and Jeff Erickson over at Rotowire, they made clear, as did David Appleman and Ian Lasseris at Fangraphs, that 
there was no bad choice here. Do not think that you're going to be ousted from, uh, you know, being liked by either side that you say no to. So they made it a lot easier. Just, you know, pick what you want. And frankly, the decision just came down. To, I just chose who asked first, which was Eno and Dave over at Fangraphs, because I couldn't really separate the two in terms of quality. It's still two of the best sites in the game, as far as I'm concerned, with Fangraphs and Rotowire. So got super lucky. I mean, listen, anybody that's in this industry and is able to do it full time, if they tell you that they didn't get lucky, they're full of crap. You have to get some good luck and some things to break your way. And that's absolutely happened, uh, you know, for me down throughout my, my journey here. I was in the newspaper business and I was a columnist, so I had my name in print pretty regularly. And generally speaking, it wasn't as big a thrill after the hundredth one, you know, so you just kind of get used to it. But I remember once we were gathering at this greasy spoon restaurant in North Regina, getting ready for our draft later that afternoon. And, uh, this guy, Scotty, his name was, he came into the restaurant. I think he'd been out on the town. He looked a little disheveled, but he looked really smug and we're looking at him and say, Scotty, you know, you look uh, ready for draft. You know, Cause we're kind of laughing. Cause he looked like he was so over. He couldn't draft a, a, a cheese sandwich, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> so he comes in, he goes, I've got you bastards this year. And we go, Oh, how's that? He says, I was down in Minot, Minot, North Dakota was where we used to go to get American, uh, baseball magazines, street and Smith's and Mazeroski and that and oh, he and we're saying well do tell and he and he, he pulls it out and he goes he's holding the thing close to his stomach and he goes yeah none of you guys are going to have access to this because i went down to minot and got it and you've never seen it before but this thing's the best and he pulls it out and it's a baseball forecaster and he slaps it on the table he says any of you guys ever seen this before and I looked at it and I ran my finger down the list. They used to list all the authors on the front of it. Mm-hmm. And I got to my name and I said, yeah, Scotty, when I started writing for it, they started putting, <laughs> they told me all about it and he got real mad and all the guys in the league start laughing and he got really like mad and stomped out. The That's thing amazing. Is he finished second that year. He drafted all dollar pitchers and like six of them hit. I can't, I still can't remember who they were, but gosh almighty, he was a funny guy and he's still in the league and it was a lot of fun. So that's incredible. How did you, well, you decided to go to Rotographs. How long has that been now? Um, I started there in 2015 at at the beginning. uh, I think it was in January of 2015. I think my first podcast episode was February 3rd, 2015. Oh, so the sleeper in the bus started right at about the same time? No, it was already going on. Nicholas Minix was hosting. Oh. And I think there might have been somebody who hosted before. I think Mike Podhorzer might have started it as as the host. Uh, but then Nick Minix and Eno were doing it. Nick was going to go back into uh, a non-baseball-related job. So I, I didn't just, like, kick him out or anything. It, there was an opening. And so when he did that, I joined and, uh, yeah, picked it up with Eno. And so uh, well, let me see what episode – number that was because we just hit number 1100 the last episode a couple days ago and i joined on episode 189 so i've been around for a little while there as far as uh as far as sleeping the bus goes 911 episodes for 90 percent of them have your have your imprimatur on there now i know that um, now you you have a bit of a rotating cast of co-hosts. I know Jason Collette appears with you on there, and Justin Mason appears with you on there. Is that well, by design? J- Jason and Justin, Jason and Justin do the Sunday episode. I'm not usually oh. as available. I take a little bit more of the weekend off, so that's when Jason and Justin get together and and do their Sunday episode. And but you do uh, episodes with at least with Justin because I just heard one the other yes. day. 
Justin and I are twice a week, and then Jason and Justin are most Sundays, but not every single Sunday. What do you like about podcasting? Um, I, honestly, debating. I love I love debating. I mean, we can call it what it is too. Arguing. I like arguing too. Um, but I, I love just debating. It's not you know even when it gets a little steamy, it's never personal for me. I'm always love. I'm not trying to go with ad hominem attacks and be like, oh, you're so stupid. But I want to argue my point and really, you know, see where things are at. And plenty of times I go like, oh, that's actually a really good point. Uh, I am wrong here and uh, change my opinion based on on the way things are framed and seeing new information. So I just love debating about players and strategies and kind of talking through things and and learning different things from different people um whether it's my co-hosts or a guest that comes on so yeah honestly i just i can't get enough about uh, enough talking about sports i'm absolutely with you on all of that uh, the most fun that that i've had in in fantasy sports media has been doing this podcast for sure and i like writing for baseball hq and i still do and i enjoy that a lot but man i love these podcasts uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper in the Bus podcast. And I remember from years ago, Paul, that your four-day was starting pitching. You really wrote a lot about starting pitching. You had a regular list that you put out and kept updated. I think you were one of the first guys I remember doing that on a regular basis. What was the source of your interest in starting pitching in particular? Well, I was on this message board called roto junkie which still exists but not quite in its uh in its full form that it, that it was at its peak back in the early 2000s and there were people that kind of started these top 100 pitcher lists and because i like debating and, and arguing i would kind of dissect those lists and give my opinions i'm like oh you got this guy too high this guy too low and kind of respond piece by piece and then they would respond to my responses and we go back and forth and then i was like well i'll i'll do my top one i got all these thoughts on everyone else's why don't I put my own out there so people can see where I'm at, right? It's easy to critique. It's a lot harder to make your own list and, and then have your list out there and let everyone else come for your list. So started it on a message board basically and just got bigger and bigger from there because I don't know how to shut up, I guess. And so eventually it became its whole thing, the starting pitcher guide that for a few years I did by myself and then eventually with Doug Thorburn, who is a, uh, an expert in pitcher mechanics. And we we really had a lot of success and traction with that. It was a lot of fun. It was a huge undertaking in the winter, but just so, so much fun. I think the peak was at like 130,000 words one year. That was actually a solo one, which was crazy. Uh, but yeah, we used to really dive deep. Every team, as many pitchers as I thought could be relevant. I started to do prospects so people could have prospects uh, if they played in dynasty leagues and stuff like that. And really the reason I decided to to put that hyper focus on it was a baseball HQ legend, uh, Rick Wilton. He kind of was saying we were, we were on a call one time and he's like, Hey, uh, you know, nice to meet you. It was the two of us. We were on before, uh, I mentioned Mark Cavity earlier. It was a call that we were doing for a magazine with him and Rick and I were the first ones there and Rick injury guy for baseball HQ for years. And he kind of asked me, asked me things about me. He was a really engaging, wonderful guy. And he's like, Hey, I don't want to tell you what to do, but, you might consider finding more of a forte. I was telling him how I'm a baseball and football guy. I can do it all. I'm a jack of all trades. He's like, that's cool. That can definitely serve you. But if for whatever reason you don't find that is valuable, try maybe, you know, going for a niche. I'm an injury guy and that's what I focus on. And those words stuck with me. And honestly, from that day forward is when I was like, I'm going to focus on pitching. It's my favorite thing to analyze. I just love getting in the weeds with pitchers. 
And that's that was it was Rick Wilton really that put me on that path. And then I just started putting all my time into pitching. Rick Wilton is a singularly wonderful guy. I have to agree with you entirely on that. How has pitching analysis evolved from the time you started with it in general, but particularly for starters? Well, I'll tell you, th this will give you a really uh, clear case of, of how far it's come. The advanced analytic that, that really put me on another level was strikeout to walk ratio. That was the cutting edge when I was really getting into it, like really analyzing somebody's K, Ks to BBs, uh, what was it? And that tells you how far we've come at this point. And I really think we see, you know, much more detailed pitch analysis at this point. And obviously that's, that, that's the next frontier too. I, th I, I think spin movement, spin and movement are really the, uh, the, the next major thing that we're going to get into. We're seeing it in their infancy right now. Uh, premium velocity and insane movement. Those are obvious, but learning how movement and spin affect pitches in, in the middle too, doesn't have to just be the outliers and learning why certain fastballs, even if they're like 91, 93, like a Joe Ryan, he doesn't have overpowering heat. Why is he so successful with it? So I've really loved how far it's come from, wow, strikeout, uh, strikeout and walk ratio is some huge advanced metric to now knowing the exact spin of somebody's fourth pitch, uh, is is pretty incredible what, what we've seen at places like Fangraphs, like Baseball Reference, like Baseball Savant. The evolution in in a relatively short period of time overall. It's been it, I've lived all the years. It's felt like a long time, but when you're going to look at it on a grander scale, it's been a pretty quick time period. How far we've come, it's been pretty pretty amazing. At Rotographs, I noticed that you write a weekly analysis of the coming week starters. There's a chart and then some past five game performance, and then you have a little observational note for each pitcher. What are you watching for when you prep the chart and when you write the notes? I'm, I'm a huge fan of game logs. I always need to know how a, a sample was created, right? Not all samples are created equally. And you take a you take a last five and somebody has a seven ERA, is that because they had you know, one major dud with nine earned and then four gems, or was it four pretty bad starts and a decent one? Like I need to know the breakdown there. So I'm always digging into game logs, seeing how a pitcher has been doing. There is data that supports hot and cold streaks with pitchers too. So if a guy's rolling, even if he's a, a lesser pitcher overall, if that last five is hot and it isn't just maybe fluke or schedule based, like he, if he has like a 100 Babbitt or something, I'm like, okay, he's not, he is pitching well, but he's not necessarily uh, on another level right now. So I'm always looking for what's driving their recent success or failure, uh, how it interplays with the matchup in question. And then I kind of go from there. So uh, I've been doing that daily in September because I think that's the the best I, best way I can be helpful for people's analysis down the stretch here. I know that not everyone even reads that because if you're not contending right now, you probably don't care. So that does become something that's a little bit more for contenders. And uh, I just, I want to be able to give fantasy value down the stretch. And I figured that was the best way that I could do it was, was the daily, the daily pitch chart. I noticed in this week's chart that you recommended Charlie Morton of Atlanta, and you made a note of the fact that he had given up four earned runs in three of his last five starts, but you were still positive on him. And also, despite the fact that his Washington opponents had the third best Woba versus right-handers in the league. Sometimes it seems like you're willing to just say, I understand that there are all these things going on, but I'm going to make a recommendation that seems to fly in the face of it. What makes you do that? I trust track records. 
Um, as much as I like those last five analyses and and looking at those things, I'm still going to look at the big picture of somebody and Charlie Morton, despite having those three, four earned run outings. First off, I will also say too, going back to like overreactions, like a four run outing, it's not that bad. Um, I, I know that, you know, if it, if it's six and four, that's not a very good, or if it's four runs in six innings, that's not a very good ERA. That's a six ERA. If you don't get six and you give up four, that's a bad ERA. I get that. But you really have to understand in the grand scheme, that's not that bad of a start. He's one run away from giving what we call a quality start if he had gone six innings, of course. So those didn't really bother me that much. I was looking at the bigger sample with him. And in Washington, while they have been playing well over the last 30, and a lot of, uh, a lot of the second half they've been playing pretty well against righties, Still going to trust somebody like Charlie Morton, who had gotten himself back. Remember, he started the season pretty poorly. Uh, we might not remember now, but he was carrying a 5.67 ERA after his 12th start of the year, and he's down at 4.09 now. And so that's a uh, that's a 3.16 ERA in his last 17 starts. So he had had a sample that told me that he's back, he's himself. I can trust him. So even though he's a little wobbly, and he was facing Washington. I was comfortable going for Charlie Morton there. And a lot of times I will still just lean on their track record and start them in positions. You can't just look at the matchup. You can't just look at the last five. You look at those things as indicators, but then you still make your decision based on the big picture. You had a note about Tyler Anderson with a coming start versus Arizona, and you referred to a 14.1 pitch value for his changeup, which you said is second best in the game for the pitch. First, for those of us who are not familiar, what is pitch value? Pitch values um, give you a way to see how successful, quote unquote, each pitch has been over the course of the year. It turns turns the pitch into a linear weighted value. Now, I can only go so far with the explanation here. You're going to have to look up the definition if you want to learn about linear weights and all that. But it is a single number that gives you an idea of where the pitch has been. It is not predictive, though. So you're using these as a backwards look of saying, hey, this has been good. It does not mean it will stay good. However, Somebody like Tyler Anderson and his changeup this year, I've also watched a ton of his starts. It is very clearly a great changeup this year. That is what's driving his success. Without a doubt, the Dodgers have unlocked a, a new level with his changeup. So I'm, I was referencing that to kind of give a way of saying, hey, this is what the Dodgers have done to make him successful with this 14.1 pitch value on the changeup. That is the reason I'm going to start him. It was against Arizona. And while the baby snakes have played pretty well down the stretch here, it has been against righties because all these new guys are left-handers. So I was very comfortable starting a lefty, even though he had a low strikeout minus walk rate over his last five, just an 8%. That's not that's not very good. Um, despite that, the quality of Anderson's season, the premium changeup, the fact that they, the uh, Diamondbacks do not do well against lefties, that was reason enough for me to stick with them. But uh, yeah, pitch values, they're a fun number to look at in season and for a given season, but don't go look at this pitch value of Tyler Anderson and say, because the changeup was good this year, it will stay good next year, especially if he leaves the the Dodgers, because they might be working with him in a certain way that they've got him, you know, cooking with that changeup. And I'm not saying that he'll forget everything they taught him if he goes somewhere else, but we know that, you know, once you kind of leave a certain team that does things one way, if you go to a team that does them the opposite way, you might have changes in your arsenal there. So don't use them as predictive, but you can use them to kind of see what pitches have had the most success uh, based on their linear weight and how they change uh, run expectancy. You talked about 
Anderson's 8% strikeout minus walk rate. And I know there are a lot of guys, including Eno Saris, who might be the best pitching analyst that we have in the business, say that that's their go-to stat. They always start with strikeout minus walk and everything goes from there. And 8%, as you said, isn't really good. What are we actually supposed to be looking for, do you think? 20% are are pretty much slam dunks if if you're talking about, uh, you know, in a a recent sample there as far as a starting pitcher strikeout minus walk rate. The league average, I believe, is 14 percent yes 14% so you know once you start getting above that league average in the upper teens range you're definitely doing something i don't mind if you're in that 13 to 15% range there can be success there but i'm really looking for an upper teens and into the 20s range of strikeout minus walk rate uh for somebody that i'm going to really lean on you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio Patrick Davitt with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper in the Bus podcast and Paul, in a recent edition of the podcast, you talked with Justin Mason about some starting pitchers who have enjoyed second half surges this year that should heighten interest in them for next year. Before we get to specific players, what marks the kind of surge that you think is more positively predictive of next year outcomes? Go right back. That was perfect transition because it's going to be strikeout minus walk rate improvements. I want to see those core skills and that goes for hitters and pitchers as much as I love all the advanced analytics that we have and I utilize them and I I leverage them in my work, still come back to strikeouts and walks all the time, pitchers and hitters. Um, I look at spring stats and I want to see what's going on. There are some valuable spring stats out there that can be predictive. Strikeout minus walk rate is absolutely one of them. So I'm always looking at at how guys are controlling the plate if they're hitters, where their strikeout and walk rates, and how guys uh, are pitching with those two factors. So those are big keys. I'm also looking for power surges from hitters. Uh, Is their ISO, which is slugging minus batting average, which gets to the core of their power, is that markedly higher than it was in the first half? I'm curious on that. And so, you know, obviously like a spike in home runs, I want to see that too. Did it, did it coincide with a a huge homer to fly ball rate or did they do things differently? So I'm always looking at the underlying metrics. What's their stat cast data looking like? What's their arsenal looking like velocity? Those are the factors that are going to have some bankability going forward. But if you just give me the strikeout minus walk rate, I can still probably put together a pretty decent list of the second half uh, surgers there, but just by my, you know, subtracting it from their first half one to see who's doing better in that metric specifically. One of the names that came up was Jose Suarez of the Angels, who had a 176 ERA 090 whip in seven starts after the All-Star break. I think after the show came out, he had a bit of a stinker in Cleveland. You talked about his four-pitch mix, including the changeup, said the pitch wasn't that impressive, and then Justin seemed to work towards persuading you that actually his changeup is pretty good. I think that was an excellent example of how you guys discuss your way to a to a proper conclusion, but what was the argument? What was the nature of the argument and what was it that convinced you? Honestly, it was a, it was a great, another uh, great example here that, uh, that you're using that references something that we just talked about because I was looking at the pitch value and I was getting too hung up on where the pitch value was making an assessment on the pitch because of that, basically using it as a predictive value saying, Oh, his changeup went from 13.1 last year to minus 2.6 this year. The changeup probably isn't working as well. Justin pointed out that you know the movement and, and overall effectiveness of that pitch wasn't too far off. The results weren't as good, but the process of it, the shape of it, if you will, uh, wasn't fundamentally altered to the point where we would now say that Jose Suarez has a bad changeup. He still uses it a ton. It is still a legit top uh, one of his top pitches and when justin brought up the numbers there i i fully you know put on my hands yeah that's right i was misusing pitch value 
And he was dead on that that changeup is still a, a useful pitch. He did unfortunately get murked in that game. Uh, it did not go well for him against Seattle with five earned in five. But I, I stand by the recommendation. He'd been pitching so brilliantly. It's a tough outing, but uh, you know everyone gets got every once in a while. But Jose Suarez is pretty intriguing. One of the points that we might have disagreed on a little bit, though, is I, I do wonder if they are going to use the the six man again next year. If, if that's a guarantee with Otani, it probably is. But uh, if they didn't, if they did go to a five, then somebody like Suarez, who could actually get two start weeks, would be a lot more, uh, you know, a lot more intriguing for me, too. One issue that popped up in Suarez's run of success after the All-Star break was that he seemed to be on a pretty good heater on luck. A 23% hit rate over that time, a 230 BABIP, it's sometimes called, a 83% strand rate, and his home runs allowed stats all well out of line with his performance before the All-Star break. What did you guys conclude with what seems like a mixed metrics package about the hot Jose Suarez as a fantasy contributor for next year? Certainly, uh, I probably was a little bit more interested in him than Justin. Justin saw him as more of a late-round guy, kind of bumped it up closer to more of the mid-rounds, where I could see the value there because I liked that he was at an 18% strikeout minus walk rate. Again, going back to that metric, I do lean on it heavily, whereas in the first half, he was only at an 11% mark. So while he did have some of his more uh, luck-based factors go up, I thought he was contributing to those with the pitch improvements that he was showing and based on how many more bats he was missing and and the fewer walks that he was allowing. So Suarez was somebody that the Angels were getting a lot of quality work out of. He was also maximizing it by getting, you know, like you said, the strand rate and the homer to fly ball uh, at, at its best. But I, I thought he was contributing to those factors too. If somebody, you know, doesn't have the skills underneath a huge strand rate and a minuscule homer to fly ball rate, I'm less likely to be like, oh, that's bankable. And I'll tell you a guy that I was like that on and that turned out to actually be wrong uh, was Martin Perez. When he was popping off at the very beginning of the year and we we're like, oh my gosh, what is Martin Perez doing? I saw the, the you know, minuscule homer to fly ball rate and said, I just don't know if this is going to last. His strikeout minus walk rate is no different, really. And even at this point, it's only two points higher than last year's mark, but he's maintained a 7% homer to fly ball what I missed, I think, was the big spike in ground balls uh, being sustainable for him. And that's been a big change for Martin Perez as he's gotten into the sinker quite a bit more. Ground ball rate went from 44% to 51%, and that has aided the homer uh, drop. And that's been the key to this season. I'll tell you what, though. It, it, hat tip to him. It's been great. I don't know if I would rebuy Martin Perez in, in hopes for a repeat next year, but he has been awesome. I was calling for his downfall repeatedly. I'm not calling for, I didn't want him to fall off, but I was predicting it because I didn't think those were stable numbers. And it turns out that that spike in ground ball rate was enough to kind of sustain him for the entire year. Another pitcher you guys identified as a second half surger this year was Brady Singer of Kansas City. He's posted a full season line, something around a three ERA, one fifteen-ish WHIP, and he was probably on a lot of twenty twenty-three radar screens anyway. But what is it about his post All Star break run that caught your guys' eye? I've been super impressed with with his command and control, and and those are two different things. Command is uh, or control is just putting the ball in the zone. You know. Um, that, that is useful. It's a good skill to have. But command is putting the ball where you want, whether that's in or out of the zone. And both, I think, have been on point for Brady Singer in this second half, putting him on another level. Some of his luckier factors uh, are, are going well, too, an 84% strand rate, a uh, you know 10% homer to fly ball rate, which isn't too far below average, but that's, that's running pretty well, too. 
And you might say, okay, well, is, is he just a strand rate guy? He's only walking. He's not walking anybody, but his strikeouts aren't great. For me, when I look at Brady Singer, I see development here too. I don't think this is just all we're getting. Now, when I say development, I mean more in terms of missing more bats and being more bankable with the numbers that he has. He has a 209 ERA in the second half. I don't see him growing on that, right? I don't see him shrinking that further. But what I do see is somebody that uh, he has a 357, 353 FIP this year, which is fielding independent pitching. It's about a half run better than his ERA. I could see him bringing his ERA and FIP closer in the future, leveraging the continued use of that command and control into more strikeouts, getting it over that uh, 24, 25% mark that I'm really looking for from guys. He's at 24 right now. If you round up 23.9, I think Singer can be a 24 to 27% guy as he continues to develop. He has a deep enough arsenal. He has the pitches that he needs with the three pitch mix. It is primarily the two with the sinker slider, but I think the changeup has at least been more of a show me pitch this year than a, uh, that or, or more, more of a legit pitch this year at 8% than a show me, which is something that you throw 5% or less. So if he further evolves the changeup builds on what he's done in the second half with that command and control, I think he can really build on this season. Now the tough part again would be, I don't, think the 307 ERA and the 114 whip are going to improve a ton. I think he can come close to repeating those metrics while giving you a markedly better strikeout rate. And ideally for more innings, he's at 141 this year, he'll get what another 15 or so we'll call it. Um, so I think he could be a 170 type guy next year. I really like Brady Singer. I think he's somebody that's definitely on the rise. Great home park too. Where do you set his 2023 round target? Where would you take him? I would start taking him as early as a, a, probably around the 10th, 12th. I don't think he's going to be super expensive. Uh, we'll see where the market is. That That is a good ERA and whip. But I, I still think he's a little bit hidden in Kansas City, even though he was a premium prospect in early first or a, a mid first round pick, number 18 overall. I don't think there's going to be a huge clamoring for Singer. He's not hidden, but he's not going to be super pushed up, I don't believe. So I think once those double digit rounds hit, I'll be able to jump in on a Brady Singer. I'm focused more on like 15 team leagues too. So even later in 10s and 12s, you're looking more like a teens round type of pick for Brady Singer. Um, if I'm off on that and he is higher and say like an eighth, ninth round guy in 15 team leagues, that's still a price I'm willing to pay. But I think I'm going to be given a bit of a discount relative to where I want to buy Brady Singer. Yeah, it's always a disadvantage for a starting pitcher to have to pitch in Kansas City because the expectation is, yeah, the, the decimals might be pretty good. He might get some strikeouts, but the prospect of wins is not that great in a poor yes. franchise, a poorly run franchise. But I guess they're making changes in that regard. So a lot of issues in flux for Brady Singer and everybody on Kansas City, which really, if you look under the hood, seems to me to be a team that's on the rise, despite everything that we've read about them. Yeah, I, I completely agree there. Another guy you guys talked about is George Kirby in Seattle. Obviously, he's not going to be a secret after this year. He's no. going to finish maybe under three for an ERA and a whip around 110, 115, something like that for his full rookie season. So how much can he have surged in the second half given his overall numbers? And what does that mean for him for 2023? The price on him is going to be substantial. George Kirby is not going to be cheap. And I actually worry that he might be overpriced. I, I worry about maybe a, a sophomore pullback, you know, a sophomore slump is what it's called, of course. But like just pulling back a little bit as far as like how could he possibly be better in the second half? You're right. It's like, oh, he's, he's so great. But he actually has been 203 ERA and a 0.98 whip in the second half compared to 378, 124 in the first half. And it's really been 
the evaporation of his home runs. Like literally, he's allowed zero in the second half. So that is riding super, super hot. That will not continue. You can do things to limit your home runs and contribute to it. You cannot give up zero homers <laughs> for much longer than you know, 10, 12 starts probably. It's been 10 starts in the second half. We'll see if he gets through the entire second half with zero homers. But George Kirby, that's been a key driver. It goes back to what I was saying about control and command. He has the control. He had that in the first half. He didn't allow very many walks at all in the first half. I'm looking at a 3% mark for 12 home runs, Patrick, for George Kirby. And that's a 1.7 homer night. So he had the control, but he didn't necessarily have the command. There might have been some bad luck there, too. I'm just going off the raw numbers. Now, with that command and the control is no worse at all. In fact, it's probably better. Uh, yeah, 2.9%. So he dropped it a couple of picks on the walk rate for Kirby. And then the command just being brilliant. Mixed in with some very good luck because you still got to get some good luck to give up zero homers. And he's just been off the charts. You will hear a lot of pushback on a 10% swinging strike rate. That is pretty pedestrian, especially for a 26% uh, strikeout rate. However, I go back to the command. And for me, somebody that has that kind of command does not need a gaudy swinging strike rate to maintain a high strikeout rate. So I think somebody like, uh, um, like George Kirby is a premium type pitcher. I'm in uh, on the overall talent. I don't know if I'm going to be in on what will probably be what, like a fifth, sixth round, fourth to sixth round cost in 15 teamers. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I'm interested in the home runs, first of all, because the division, if he was playing a lot of games in the inside the division in the AL West, there's a lot of tough parks to hit home runs in, in that division, not, not accepting uh, Seattle itself is a pretty a good park for pitchers as far as home runs allowed. Um, Oakland is of course a cavernous place and, and uh, the exceptions would be Houston, I think, but Texas has become something of a pitcher's park as well. So yep. is there any aspect of uh, Kirby's post all-star break run of good performance that has to do with having been in those big AL West parks? I think I think they're absolutely. I think you're keying in on something very important there. And one thing I will say, you're right about Houston that it that is probably the toughest of the parks, but only really for pull righty power. So if he can avoid those, you know, don't don't get inside on an Altuve or a Bregman and let them rip it down the line for those Crawford boxes. Then you can still have a pretty neutral or even friendly home run environment there too. In addition to, like you said, Texas has changed. Oakland's always been a haven. In addition to being. Uh, bad hitters they also have that massively spacious park and in an interesting one this year is that angel stadium has ramped up they have a 121 park factor this year it's fourth in the league uh, excuse me that's over the last three years that's fourth in the league so that one's been a bit tougher of course they have two of the best players in the universe as well but he did run through their division quite a bit i see one two three four five six of his 10 starts in the second half have been against the division. And then he got a trip to uh, Cleveland, which is not a particularly home run uh, heavy park. It, it's pretty neutral. And then truest park where the Braves play is a 98 and 100, 100 is average. So it's right around average as well. So the schedule did indeed bless him. Oh, he, sorry. He played Atlanta at home, but he did go to Cleveland and Detroit and Detroit's an easy park to pitch in as far as power because they have a terrible team and it's a remarkably spacious park. They are dead last in home run uh, park factor this year uh, over the last three years for Comerica park. So George Kirby did get a schedule blessing. Uh, he took full advantage of it though. And he's been amazing. And by the way, I will say that uh, the second half, he allowed zero homers, but also the two starts 
going into the half, it's zero homers too. So he is on a 12 start homer free streak right now. You want to know what's funny about that, Patrick? The start before four homers in four innings. So he gave up four homers and he must have said, that's it. I can't keep doing this because he that was his fourth multi-homer game and his worst outing as a pro. And he, I don't know if he made a change there, but it, there was a clear, it, that's a clear turning point. I don't know if he did anything or if he just got better, but it was after the four homer game. He's like, uh-uh, I got to change this. And George Kirby has not allowed a homer since. Maybe he just thought, I don't like this. I don't, this feels bad. <laughs> this is not working I, this for is, me. <laughs> this is not fun for me when I give up four homers and seven earned against Baltimore. <laughs> against Baltimore? Yeah, and it wasn't even in Baltimore because, by the way, they don't have much of a home run park factor for right-handers anymore because of their big right. park change, which everyone's been keyed in on this year. But it has been remarkably stark. They are now the sixth lowest, and that's the, just this year only. If you do the three-year rolling average, you still see that they're seventh, but that's misleading. So be very, very careful. Or they're ninth. But that's very misleading. you got to be careful when teams make park changes not to use a rolling three-year average because – Two years are different from the one year. And finally, both you guys were pretty enthusiastic about Cincinnati's Nick Lodolo. There's lots to like there, of course, starting with the prospect pedigree and then the performance. But what was the focus of your positive analysis on Nick Lodolo? I, I think this is a, a premium prospect really showing why why he was you know given that prospect or had that prospect status coming into his own. Yes, it's a little bit of a tougher park. Or not, not, I don't want to downplay it. It is a tough park. It is a tough park to survive in. They have literally the best home run park factor over the last three years by a ton, by the way, well above Coors, which might surprise some folks. Uh, they are at a 150 park factor. They give you a 50% better chance to hit a home run. However, we know that that premium guys can still succeed there. We, we were drafting Luis Castillo when he pitched there, Sonny Gray. Remember, they had Trevor Bauer when they had all three of them. Things were going well. So I will still take a premium Reds pitcher. I'm not going to run from them just because of that park factor. It could be a little bit dodgy for Lodolo there, but I'm looking at a 30% strikeout rate from somebody in his rookie year, and I'm just salivating over that. There's so much upside here with Lodolo. Uh, he's been excellent in his 92 innings. He's going to be super expensive next year, though, so if you want him, get ready to pay up. But I do believe that this is the uh, the, the breakout party for somebody who's going to be one of the better starters in the, in the coming years. I'm probably going to have him as a top 40-type starter. So to play the devil's advocate just for a second, you've got a fairly bad offensive team in Cincinnati, sure. and you have a very pitcher-unfriendly park, and you're still in on Nick Lodolo despite those two seeming gigantic disadvantages? I am. I am. And wins are tough, right? They're, they're definitely tough. But even the best situations aren't going to necessarily give you the best wins. And that doesn't mean you want to take on a bunch of bad situations and just try to get lucky. But I also do wonder if they're going to start to move forward with this team. There are some pieces there that are working, but you look at that offense, it is still dreadful. It will not be a one-year fix. But I do hope that that as they find some pieces in their bullpen here, that honestly, you didn't bring that part up, but that might worry me even more than the offense. Right, I meant to. <laughs> Outside of Alexis Diaz, who do you really trust in that bullpen? I, I mean, and even he, it can be a little bit dodgy with the 13% walk rate, but he's so dominant that he can kind of overcome it. So that's actually a bigger concern for me. Um, but studs are studs. And I don't know, like he's not an, a, an excessive ground ball guy, Lodolo, so a bad defense won't necessarily harm him. He's pretty neutral there. They have to start bringing up some of these younger guys next year i would imagine right they're going to start to have their youth movement and i think the team will start to get better kind of under 
under his feet there with for Lodolo. So the price is going to dictate it, though, end of the day. And if people are really pushing him up and putting him as a top 25, top 30 starter, I'll have to back off on Lodolo. I love the talent, but there are those soft factors, or not even soft, like those are legit factors that will push me away if the price gets too high. So you, br- you bring up a great point. It's, it's a, the, the right kind of way to play devil's advocate there because those are stark points against him. The talent plays, though, and despite those factors this year, he still put up a 390 ERA and a 127 whip. He can improve upon those, but I think your point is that he might not improve upon them next year because that team might remain dreadful. So that's a good call out there. And if you're not willing to take somebody who's a high three ZRA with a decent whip and an amazing strikeout rate as a top 30 starter, then maybe you stay away from Lodolo because maybe he's not a low three ZRA, low, you know, one. 12 115 type whip guy for two years down the line type deal. So I, I hear you on that for sure. And just as a nod to the listeners I have who sometimes write in and say, why don't you ever talk about Stratomatic? It looks to me like uh, a guy like Lodolo could be a really good Stratomatic pick because people are going to pay too much attention to the team context, which is kind of removed when you play those sim exactly. formats and it's just his skills that play and how you put them into the lineup that you've built, which could include all kinds of good hitters and all kinds of good bullpen people. So keep that in mind when you're thinking about whether you should play games like that, because actually they're really fun and, and you should think about it. I grew up playing Strat, by the way, and it was the best. I now play out of the park baseball, which is basically a computerized Stratomatic. I remember back when I was a kid, Sports Illustrated put out a card-based game and it only had about, I don't know, 60 cards or so, 35 hitters, 25 pitchers, and they were all Hall of Famers. And going back to the dawn of baseball, so you could have a team that had Johnny Bench on it and Honus Wagner and, you know, guys like that. That's really cool. And unfortunately, whoever got Babe Ruth won. Like the the game design was flawed to that extent. He was just too powerful of a hitter. So Uh, what most of the guys I knew, we played in a little league with some guys I was in high school with. We just threw the card out. Because if, if one guy wins with him, yeah, it was like, um, back in the day when I was playing in hockey pools, we had a rule that Gretzky was off limits or that we had to draft separately his goals from his assists because otherwise first pick won the league, just Wayne Gretzky and you could uh, sleep through the rest of it and auto pick. Honestly, while I have advocated for, uh, all leagues counting everything for Otani, you know, just, you get everything. Maybe it is the right way because it, maybe it would just be too OP and I don't want leagues to be done before they start. And in a points league specifically, I think is where it would really, well, actually even in a roto league, cause again, he's contributing to every category right. uh, except saves, but yeah, I, I, maybe it is right then that, that, that he, that you either have to make the decision or that he's split into two players because um, I do remember games like that. And there were video game situations like that too, you know, uh, you can't use Bo Jackson in Tech Mobile. He's just too overpowered. And sometimes guys break games to where you just can't use them if you want to have anything fair. And some of the numbers that Gretzky was putting up, anybody that loves hockey, of course, knows. But if even if you're just like tacitly familiar with hockey, go look at his hockey reference page and realize what those numbers would have done in fantasy. And to try to equate it, I mean, it, it, it's probably akin to what? Somebody putting up like, 200 rbis or something yeah hack wilson style stats yeah yeah like with the points the points that gretzky put up would be his rbis and the assists that he put up would be his runs or something and just think of somebody putting up like 150 of both or 200 yeah Yeah, 200 of both yeah yeah i I think maybe 200 of both and then and then 50 homers would be his goals uh, or or 60 homers so somebody that did that and it's like 
yes, he's great and everything, but if it just ruins the league, maybe he needed to be banished there in those fantasy hockey leagues. But yeah, great point there. And uh, I will say one quick thing before we move on. My friends and I created a card game from scratch. We we played this game called Magic the Gathering, which you may have heard of. Sure, which yeah. is like, a, yeah, uh, you know, card card game of uh, wizards and warriors and things like that. It was really cool. But two of us in the friend group were huge sports guys, and we wanted to create something baseball uh, wise. And I knew of Stratomatic, but I wanted to make it a little bit more with like specialty powers and things like that. So we drew up, we cut you know cardboard out. Uh, we only each had our own team. We didn't have like extra cards. You only had your team. But uh, yeah, several years later, a card game came out. We were like, hey. That was our idea. And I'm sure we were not alone, but we created a whole game from scratch and it was pretty fun. So what a, a skill set would include, you know, a 110 power, 105 speed and a 112 spell index or like yeah, yeah. literally you, magic? You could do, you could do certain things like Bonds, you know, he had, he had, Canseco had like specialty home run to where you could almost get an automatic homer. It was never fully automatic, but you could be like, I'm powering up Canseco here for this ninth inning at bat and now he goes from a you know 62 percent homer to like an 84 percent type of homer it was like power-ups like that that would never give you any automatic runs because then you could just save it till the ninth inning and, and right. automatically win but it would greatly increase your chances like um i got a roger clemens strikeout boost and now it's going to be an 89 percent chance that you're striking out here instead of a 72 percent chance things like that that would increase your chances of getting the uh the the result that you desired we were, we were giant nerds that back then. <laughs> Before we go to our boons and banes, Paul, uh, just talking about the draft slotting for 2023 of pitchers, I wonder what your take is on some of the developments that have been talked about as this year winds up based on what happened earlier this year. There was a big push to start grabbing starting pitchers as early as the first round, a lot in the second round, yeah. and and closers starting in kind of like the fourth round. And after this year, when so many starting pitchers didn't measure up to first round ADPs, the new conventional wisdom seems to be push the starting pitchers down, push the relief pitchers up, especially the elite closers. How do you think that's going to play out next year when the drafts actually start? And how should it play out? Where do you sit on drafting, starting pitching, or relief pitching earlier or later than usual based on what happened this year? And should we make decisions based on a single year's data? I'm a pay for closers kind of guy. And I was actually recently in a discussion about this, uh, breaking it down. And I think it worked. I, I think paying for closers was pretty valuable this year. If you look at the top 10 closers, uh, eight of them, Eight, eight of them were pretty, or excuse me, uh, I, was, I was looking at the top 10 in the main event right now. Eight of those teams took at least one premium closer. One of them took two. And then breaking down the top 10 guys, which were Hayter, Hendricks, Iglesias, Classe, Diaz, Presley, Jansen, Romano, Chapman, Gallegos, Knievel, and Rogers, that's a pretty good success rate there. Um, you know, Hayter, of course, is melted in the second half, but you still got 32 saves. Same with Taylor Rogers. He melted in the second half, lost his job, but you got 31 saves. So even two of the bigger busts, quote unquote, weren't even true save busts. They hurt your ratios undoubtedly, but you got 30 plus saves. Then Hendricks was great. Um, Iglesias unexpectedly lost his job. That doesn't make me not want to draft premium closers. That That's just unlucky. Kase was a god. Diaz was a god. Presley was good, uh, but injured, unfortunately. Jansen had a bump recently, but 33 saves. Romano, 33 saves. So the only real busts are Chapman and Knievel, which are mostly injury. Rogers. Uh, and that's only partial. And then Gallegos lost his job to Ryan Helsley, 
uh, in terms of the top 12 who went in uh, in the top 100 of the main event over at the NFBC, which is just a, it's not the only league to look at or anything like that. It's just a, a, a good sample to look at uh, of a particular caliber of player. It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, it's the end all be all. But I thought that paying for saves worked. And I think it, I'm going to continue to do it. And I might end up with next year's, uh, well, I was a Giovanni Gallegos guy. I was a huge Giovanni Gallegos yeah, guy. I never too. saw Brian Kelsey coming. Uh, I knew he wasn't going to get every save. They said that. I, I had my eyes wide open on that. But I thought he was going to be last year, this year's version of last year's Emmanuel Quasse, who got uh, only like 24, 25 saves, but did great on the ratios and had good strikeouts. I thought Gallegos was going to be that this year because I didn't, I didn't give any mind to Alex Reyes or Jordan Hicks. I just didn't see Ryan Helsley coming out of nowhere and dominating. So I'm going to pay for closers again, uh, probably just one at the top and then kind of speculate. And then as far as starters go, there is going to be, I think, in early drafts, which crazily enough, will start soon. People will start doing drafts for next year very soon. In fact, there's already one that went off about a month ago. They got really early on it. Uh, but we'll see a bunch in October, November. I think there'll be a little bit of a push down on starters in those leagues because there were so many early busts. Uh, but a lot of them were uh, health busts. Like, are, are you off Walker Buehler because he got hurt? Like, he got hurt. I, I don't know. I mean, he wasn't very good before that either. But I'm not going to use Buehler giolito uh who else was up there that that's kind of busted uh, those are the two big ones i think they're not reason enough for me to to back off on guys garrett cole corbin burns max scherzer brandon woodruff zach wheeler shane bieber julio Urias, and aaron nola sandy alcantara and robbie ray were pretty darn good in the top 15 pitchers so I think we'll see an early peel back on starters, but then as the main event gets closer and as we get into February and March, I think the starting pitchers will get pitched back, pushed back up. We'll start to develop our favorites. You'll see a guy like Shane McClanahan start going as like the third starter overall and start inching into the back end of the first round. I think it'll be the same pattern as we've seen in previous years. People overreact and say, I don't want to draft starters. And then as we do all of our offseason analysis, they realize you still want to try to get an ace. Obviously, you can land on the unlucky one and lose, but if you land on the right one, like Sandy Alcantara, he can be massive for you. So in the end, I'm still open to paying for both. I usually, in my first five rounds, I'm going to have three hitters and one of each, a starter and a closer. Not not every single time, but that's generally what I'm looking for, Patrick. Yeah, I think that's a pretty balanced approach. And then the question gets down into the fine details about which pitcher when, which hitter when, exactly. and a lot of that depends on where you're drafting in the scheme of things and what your uh, table mates are doing that, you know, you may think, okay, my first round pick's going to be Garrett Cole, and then you get sniped, and then you have to go to plan B, whatever it is, and that's just something that happens. But yeah, I think 3-1-1 makes a lot of sense, but I've talked to guys this year who have said, no, I'm going two starters, or starter, closer, starter, and then I'll figure out the hitting from there, and you know, well, you can make a case for it. I, I, I wouldn't, but you can make a case for it. You, you certainly can, because one thing I did notice this year, and I haven't done the analysis, uh, I haven't updated the analysis in a while, but I was looking at this uh, about a month or so ago, and I realized that my reserve or my, my waiver pickup hitting was pretty comparable to my drafted hitting in terms of rates, you know, per 600 plate appearances type deal, except for the runs, because you're generally picking up guys that aren't batting as high in the lineup. But the home runs were comparable. The, the RBIs were surprisingly comparable, as were the stolen bases and the batting average, too, which is also a surprise because you're not usually picking up. That's actually probably more due to the fact that I had a bad batting average, though, so don't yeah. take too much into that. But 
I was talking with Jeff Zimmerman about it, and the obvious reason, of course, is the DH in the NL. There's a lot more hitter options on the waiver wire this year, generally speaking, and pitching has been a nightmare to figure out. Um, the, the last month or so in the main event that I'm in, there have been no useful starters. Like the occasional guy coming off the IL that somebody cut a month or so ago has been the only thing that's popped up. Everybody else is already on a team somewhere. Pitching has been a lot harder to pick up in season. So that's when I think people are still going to come back to say, I still need to get some pitchers early. I still want to try to get a 200 inning workhorse because I can find some hitting on the waiver wire, which hasn't always been the case. I think the NLDH was a big shift there this year that uh, is going to be analyzed a lot this offseason. There'll probably be an article about it in the forecaster and people will start to see, wow, maybe you can get some hitting off the wire so you can go with two or three pitchers in your first five and then worry about getting some mid and then uh, waiver wire, some mid round and then waiver wire hitters that, uh, that can, that can make up the gap of where you would normally get those premium hitters in the first three, four rounds. Last thing before Boons and Baines, I promise, where do you stand on the burgeoning Twitter debate about whether we need to go to saves plus holds or some variation of that? I actually am kind of more with Phil Dussault who said, uh, you know, it's just going to water it down and then take away that value from, from saves. I understand the pain of saves, right? That's why I draft them because the underrated cost is having to deal with it all year and spend and allocate a ton of your fab and have to fight for every guy. I don't love doing that. And sometimes you're still going to have to do that after, um, you know, after you drafted somebody like I drafted Presley and Gallegos. Presley got hurt. Gallegos lost his job. I did have to get back into the saves mix. I got lucky on Felix Bautista. So I, I don't think that, um, I, I don't think that that's something that I'm going to necessarily lean away from. I read something that really struck me as accurate and I actually put it into my answer on the uh, tout table that Todd runs every week that I've talked about earlier in the show. And that is, we all agree that saves is kind of a crummy stat, but you don't fix a crummy stat by using an even crummier one and adding it in, right? That's a great point. I'll tell you what I've recently advocated for, and I know it's not, the, the, the downside of what I'm about to say is that you can't watch a game and know that you got this stat. And that's always a downside of, of adding a stat, but are you familiar with shutdowns and meltdowns? I know of the concept and I'm in favor. Yeah. I, I think that's actually the absolute winner. Uh, shutdowns and meltdowns is a metric based on win probability added. And basically if you add 6% of win probability, you get a shutdown. If you take away 6% of win probability, you get a meltdown. And what all I'm advocating for is just shutdowns. I don't, you can put the meltdowns off to the side, but we would just go from saves to shutdowns. And to give you a quick idea of what the shutdowns list would look like, uh, there would be value to people. It, it would create a different pool, but it wouldn't, um, it wouldn't just have everyone be great. The leader is Devin Williams with 39 sh shutdowns. Uh, you got Duran, Bard, Romano, Jason Adam in the top five. You have 15 guys who have 30 shutdowns this year. So there's enough to go around. Um, I guess there is a similar point to the saves holds thing, but these are the best pitchers. These are the guys, these are the best relievers this year that are adding value. It gives a unique look at different guys like Rafael Montero is sixth in shutdowns. He's actually better than Edwin Diaz, but Edwin Diaz of course has a billion saves. So for me, it's either saves or make a full pivot to something like shutdowns, meltdowns. I'd love to see a, a site like a fan tracks, put together a league where you can do, because they they customize a lot of stuff. I, I should ask them. I should try to do it myself instead of hoping somebody else does it. Do a league with shutdowns and see if it is better. 
Um, the one downside is, you know, that there are, are a lot more to go around. So it would take away some of the value. I mentioned there were 15 guys that have 30 plus shutdowns. There are 15 guys that have 20 plus saves. So there isn't as much of that excellence at the top because you can get a shutdown at any point in the game. But I think that gives a better pool of player and you're still fighting, right? If there's more available, then you need a higher number to be the top too. So you'd still have to fight and claw and have a Devin. You couldn't just have Devin Williams and then lead the league though. You'd have to have Devin Williams and like uh, Brad Boxberger, who has 31, surprisingly. So I think shutdowns are, are the real answer, but I also understand the shortcomings of it because I can't watch a game and say, oh, that was definitely a shutdown because I don't know how to add win probability uh, just by watching a game. Like that's that's very difficult. Yeah, that's a point that Mike Gianella made when we were talking about the same subject that you really want to try to have a stat that you can figure out whether you got it by watching the game live on TV. You say, oh good, I got a win. We all know when that happens and oh good, I got exactly. a save or oh, or oh heck, I didn't, you know, kind of situation. And I wonder if there's going to be some kind of a stat invented. This is something I mentioned earlier as well that you could say, you know, outs minus base runners and runs allowed. And if it's positive, you get an effective appearance. And if it's not positive, you don't. And you could yeah. eliminate minuses and just take positives because we don't, we don't do blown saves or blown holds. I don't think exactly. there is such a thing as blown holds actually. No, because you can get a hold being pretty horrible. Like you can seriously give up you can get like one out, give up three runs. And if yeah. the score's in the right spot, you get a hold. So I understand the people who push back on hold. I do say, I will say though, be careful just finding the outlier of a stat to say why it's bad folks. That that's not always the case. Like I hear that a lot with quality starts. People say, Oh, six innings, three runs. That's a four fifty ERA. Less than 10% of quality starts are six innings, three runs. Well, this is an old analysis, but that was back then. Um, so don't just judge it off of that. Holds are not very good, though. I'm not a huge holds guy. I would play a save holds league, but I prefer either just to keep it at saves or move to something completely different uh, and implement something like shutdowns type of deal. It also struck me that one of the big complaints about the saves as a category is that it depends heavily on manager decision-making yes. rather than on actual Win. talent, you know, which is a lot like wins as well. You're right. And then, and then it struck me, well, if you add holds, that's the same thing. I mean, the guy has to come into a situation that has a certain amount of leverage and then the WPA based ideas that's based on leverage, which is in turn based on manager decision-making because he puts a guy into a leverage situation or he yep. doesn't. And all of these things are going to have to be worked out. I hope they somebody figures out a way to standardize it to something that's a little more amenable to the better relief pitchers in the league without, as you said, without opening the door so that, you know, 60% of relief pitchers are basically rosterable because I don't think that exactly. suits anybody. It's like we we want a way to make sure that that Johan Duran is is very fantasy valuable despite having only eight saves. But like you said, you don't want every Tom, Dick, and Harry to be valuable uh, either because then it negates the uh, adding that value to the guys that are the middle relievers. So we don't have the answer yet, but hopefully we keep working at it because I, I don't think holds just adding holds is necessarily the best answer. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper in the Bust podcast. And Paul, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes. And for the last couple of weeks, I've been looking at boons and banes for 2023 because a boon and bane for the rest of this year is a two-week proposition, which seems kind of foolish to even embark upon. So let's start with your boons. These are players who look like good value for 2023. Let's start in the American League. Who's a batter you think could be a boon? 
you know, I'm going to go with a guy that I actually liked this year to have some sneak value, and he has delivered on that. But it was a little too late to hit the uh, the bold prediction that I gave Nick Gordon uh, when I said he could maybe he could maybe volume his way into like a 2020 type season. That was a bold hot take prediction. It was never meant to be like his projection, um, but he has played well. And he's put up uh, nine homers and six steals in his 396 plate appearances with a 280 average. I think there's an opportunity for him to be a full-time player next year. We'll see how they kind of uh, change up that team a bit. Is Correa going to opt out and not come back? What's up with their outfield? He can play out there. So can Royce Lewis. So I like Nick Gordon. Uh, I, I also like Royce Lewis, by the way. But uh, Nick Gordon, I think, is a, a solid player. I, I see him as a kind of a Jonathan VR type. He hasn't quite shown that that type of running yet to where he's run a ton. He has 16 stolen bases in his 612 major league plate appearances. But I do believe he could be like a cheap 2020 type guy if he found a starting role uh, from day one in Minnesota next year. So keep an eye on what Nick Gordon playing Nick Gordon's playing time shapes up to be next year because I don't think he's going to be expensive no matter what. The Carlos Correa situation will be huge in that. You're exactly right. Uh, let's go to the National League. Who's a batter who could be a 2023 boon? I think I'm ready to buy back in on Max Muncy. He was a, a full fade for me this year due to the elbow. I don't regret that at all. I absolutely think that it played a role in why he was so bad for the bulk of the year. He is closing strong, but outside of like a, a an insane playoff where he's just hitting like Randy Rosarena style homers, I don't think he's going to raise his price to a level that's going to be cost prohibitive. I still think there's going to be a sharp discount on Max Muncy next year um, to where I'm going to be ready to buy back in. I think the elbow is looking pretty healthy, uh, or at least I, I don't know how his elbow is, but it seems like it's going pretty healthy because he's been so much better in September this year. So I'm ready to buy back in on Max Muncy next year. He has a 10-15 OPS in, in September, 9.06 in August. So 12 homers down the stretch. He's back. People will see that. I'm, it's not hidden, but he's still going to be cheap enough to buy back in Max Muncy for the Dodgers. Let's go to the mound, your specialty, and talk about an American League pitcher you think is a 2023 boon. I'm willing to buy high on Tristan McKenzie. Uh, it, may, it might be because we are body comps. It, it's literally nice to see exactly what I would look like out there. He is 6'5", 165, so we are one-to-one -one body comps, Tristan McKenzie and I. And so maybe I'm just too enamored with uh, with my body comp dominating out there, but I've loved watching what he's been doing. Cleveland's become a pitching factory. They've turned you know random prospects and non-prospects into premium guys. Tristan McKenzie might be their very best prospect since this entire run happened. Going back to the Carlos Carrasco, Corey Kluber, when they started to really develop guys, uh, Carrasco was a big prospect himself, by the way, but McKenzie might be the single best prospect. And considering what they've done with guys who are less worse than him, I cannot wait to see what his peak looks like. He's had a breakout summer. He will not be cheap, but I'm willing to buy Tristan McKenzie next year because health, I think, is the only thing that can really stand in his way. The talent is there. I do worry about health, but Patrick, I worry about health with any pitch. I don't. I think the differences in health risk between pitchers is minuscule. Outside of somebody that has chronic injuries like a Steven Strasburg, the run-of-the-mill starter who is deemed healthy is – is that much is at as much risk as somebody who, you know, uh, is seen as quote unquote injury prone, like a Tristan McKenzie, who did have a lot of injuries coming up uh, through the minors. But I, I love what he does. And health is such a difficult thing to pin down that I'm not going to run from guys just based on, on uh, health scares. 
I always think of it as uh, they're all bombs, and the only difference is how long the burning fuse is on all of them. Exactly. So and, and that, take your that, chances. That's, that's simply the truth. So give me the guy who's uber talented, like Tristan McKenzie. And if I get burned due to the injury, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it happens a lot, even with guys that are like he's iron clad. You know, he's he's rock solid iron. He will not get hurt, and then they get hurt. And it's then they get hurt. Yeah. yeah uh, Max Scherzer this year. I had yes. him on. I had him on a team because I've had him on teams before. He never misses games, and he misses some games. It, you know that kind of stuff is going to happen. Uh, speaking of which, how about a National League pitcher who could be a boon in twenty twenty three? Going to going to much lower lower tier here. Much uh, much more available is going to be a Dre Jameson for Arizona, rookie prospect who's come up, put up two very good outings in remarkably difficult circumstances. He got the Padres in his debut, dominated them for seven, then went to the Dodgers and put up six very strong innings. So I love what I'm seeing out of Dre Jameson. The hits keep coming, though. He gets a trip to Houston next time, too, if he doesn't pitch on the weekend here. So the schedule's been very difficult, but we're talking next year. I think Arizona's starting to put some things together. We've seen the baby snakes rising, as I mentioned earlier, especially against righties. Zach Gallon's really their only good pitcher right now. But keep an eye on both Dre Jamison. I'll even throw Ryan Nelson in there, too. I'm, I'm higher on Jamison, but I'll throw both prospects in. Dre Jamison's going to be a cheap pitcher next year. I like him as a gamble. That division is tough, but guess what, Patrick? You don't have to face the division as much next year with the schedule change. So he's not going to get as much Dodgers and Padres and going to Coors. So I like Dre Jamison for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Very intriguing prospect who's making a, a, a nice little showing here down the stretch. Yeah, I like Dre Jamison too. I like Arizona, period. I just think the Same. turnaround on that team has been really fun to watch. Uh, over to our Banes. Uh, once again, let's start in the American League. Who's a batter who could be a Bane for 2023? I'm, I'm kind of kicking a guy when he's down, I admit, and I'm sorry for that, Jesse Winker, because I really love the player. But I do not recommend a, a, a rebuy here. I, I, I would not run this back. He's still been an above average hitter because he's such a good uh, plate uh, plate discipline guy, excuse me, 15% walk rate for, for Jesse Winker. So he still has a 105 WRC plus 100 is average. So he's been 5% better than league average, but we knew that Seattle was going to sap his power and it has done exactly that. He set a career high in plate appearances, which has been another issue for him. It's been health. Um, and he only has 13 homers, which is uh, 11 off of last year's pace in fewer plate appearances. And so I don't really see a rebound here. I worry that people are going to say, hey, he, the price is going to go way down. This is a quality hitter. He's a very good player, but that park is awful for him. So I'm very nervous about Jesse Winker still. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double down on avoiding him. I, I wouldn't touch him this year, and I wouldn't even take the discount for next year. How about in the National League, a batter who could be a bane? You know what? I'm, I'm going to be a little mean here because this guy's breaking out. He's been a fun story, but I'm not sure I really see it with Joey Manessis in Washington, the 30-year-old breakout. I know it's a little bit of a lazy comparison to just say, oh, it's this year's Frank Schwindel, but there are some pretty interesting similarities between the two journeymen popping up. I would say that Manessis has more bankable power while Schwindel had a more bankable hit tool. Either way, I still see sharp regression here. I'm not even sure if the Nats are going to be encouraged to give the 31-year-old, which is what he'll be next year, a full shot at the first base job. So it's been a fun story. I'm rooting him on. I'd love to be wrong here, but even at a cheap price, which I think he'll be a 20th something round pick, I still wouldn't take Joey Manessis for Washington. Back to the mound we go. American League pitcher who could be a bane for 2023. 
I think some of the Orioles pitchers I'm going to be a little bit worried about. I, I will land on one specifically instead of just saying all of them. But be well, well, go go Kyle Bradish and Tyler Wells together. They've both shown some intrigue for sure. And that home park has absolutely helped them big time. I do wonder if either will take the big step forward. I'm probably a bit more in on Bradish than Wells, although they're not too dissimilar. What's been interesting is that both have had home run issues despite the park improvement, and despite what that left field wall has been able to do for them, uh, and and guys like Austin, both who I really quite like, so I would be a little bit nervous on expecting major growth from those guys. It's really going to depend on their price. If the market doesn't move them up too much, then you can stick with them. But I expect a jump because there's going to be a hype around Baltimore for good reason. By the way, I think they're this year's Seattle. Remember, Seattle made a great run last year, but they fell short. Then we all got excited about what they were going to do the following year. We're going to get excited about Baltimore. There's a reason to be excited, but tap the brakes a little bit on Wells and Bradish, especially Wells. Uh, he hasn't really found a way to get the swing and miss consistently into his strikeout rate, only 18% strikeouts or 6.6 .6 if you're more of a per nine guy. I like Bradish a bit more, but I'm tapping the brakes on both those guys. And finally, a National League pitcher who could be a Bane. I don't know what where people are going to put miles michaelis but i am going to fade him because what's probably going to happen i would imagine is what happened with 2018 is that the price went way up and he he's not that good or not as good as a 283 era he's probably not as good as the 335 this year he has a lot of things that work in his favor for me miles michaelis and profiles like him are ones that i'll always buy low on i'll gladly buy low but i never want to pay for the the, the top price so next year is going to be another up and i don't want to pay that he's probably more of a low fours era true talent it's not the the flashiest fade a lot of people will probably be fading him but even as like a seventh to 11th round pick. That's a pretty wide range, but I don't know exactly where people are going to value the 34 year old Michaelis. But even in that sort of range, I think I just want to pass. He's best bought as an 18th rounder who spikes up as opposed to somebody as an uh, even 11th rounder that you need to perform well. So I'll say Miles Michaelis as my pitcher Bane uh, in the National League for next year. Even though I really like him and I did like him a lot this year, everything comes down to price in fantasy. So you can love a guy one year and then completely dislike them the next year based on their price. A guy like that for me this year was Tyler O'Neill. And he's another type profile that I will never buy high on. So next year I'm betting back in on Tyler O'Neill because he faded. He's going to be cheaper. I'll buy back in. But there's certain profiles that are 1,000% dependent on the price. And these finesse pitcher profiles like Miles Michaelis are definitely in that category for me, Patrick. Yeah, really, they're almost all dependent on the price, except I think in the first and second round and the 22nd and 23rd round. Everything else in between is a, is a price value proposition. I think you're right. Uh, Paul Sporer's Boons in the American League, Nick Gordon of Minnesota National League, Max Muncy of the Dodgers, his pitchers Tristan McKenzie of Cleveland and Dre Jameson of Arizona, his Baines uh, Jesse Winker of Seattle, Joey Menesis of Washington, Kyle Bradish and Tyler Wells in Baltimore and Miles Michaelis in St. Louis. Paul, remind our listeners where they can keep up with your work. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Sporer, S-P-O-R-E-R. -E I also stream on Twitch, play all sorts of games out of the park, baseball, MLB, the show. If you're into other sports, I play Madden football as well as NBA 2K. Lots of stuff going on there. And I do fantasy drafts during the, uh, the, the winter and spring as well. So if you want to just come talk baseball, even when I'm playing other sports, if you want to talk baseball while I'm playing Madden, we do it all the time. So come out, twitch.tv slash Sporer. I'm streaming five, six days a week. Come through and, uh, and, and talk some baseball with me. 
are those uh, Twitch sessions at a specific schedule time or just when you feel like it? Um, they are at a, I, I don't have a set schedule every day. Like on Mondays, you can't always find me at this time, but I do a bo morning box score show, which of course will end soon when the season ends. I do a morning box score show on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, um, at eight 30 central, usually around there. And then the gaming streams are usually in the evening, sometime around seven o'clock PM central till about midnight, somewhere in that range there. So on a, on a weekday evening, you're usually going to find me. Um, and then on a weekend, it, it's a little bit more sporadic based on what my girlfriend and I are doing on that weekend. And, uh, will you be at first pitch Arizona? I absolutely will. I can, I cannot wait. Is, or will you be doing the, uh, podcast out there in the podcast yes. breakout room? We will be doing a podcast. I, I hope and I believe I will be on the Fact and Fluke Pitcher panel as well, and I just cannot wait. I, I gush about it all the time on The Sleeper and the Bus. Justin and I adore this uh, this event so much, and I cannot wait. I'm so excited for the Home Run Derby, too. That's going to be so cool on Saturday night. We got the All-Star Game on Sunday, and just talking. You know, If you just love talking with like-minded people like we're just doing here on the pod, you just go there, even if you don't know anybody. It's such an inviting and friendly group. I remember my first year where all I knew was Jason Collette, who, by the way, you know, put me on to the forecaster. I remember him giving me my first one. And it was like, you know, if you've seen Pulp Fiction where the suitcase has the gold coming out of it, that gold sheen, that's yeah. what it was like when I was looking at that forecaster. There was like a gold glow on my face. So even if you don't know people and you come out by yourself, we'll integrate you. There's plenty of people to talk with and everyone's super friendly. You will find your people out there. If you are a baseball nut, the Arizona fall league is great. The baseball HQ conference is a must. It certainly is. I absolutely vouch for every word of that. Paul, thanks very much for helping us out. I knew it would be fun. It was more fun than I expected. Actually, it's almost too bad. We didn't get to record and play the, the reminiscing that we were doing before we went live on the recording. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. I had no idea, but, uh, yeah, we're talking about, uh, Barry Sanders and, uh, going back into the dawn of time. It was just a lot of fun. I appreciate it. And I'll see you in Arizona. Sounds great, Patrick. Have a good one. Take care. Paul Sporer writes for Rotographs and hosts the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. A quick break here, and then we're back with our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer and extra innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. One more Baseball HQ item I wanted to mention is the Eyes Have It podcast. In this edition, Brent Hershey and Chris Blessing discuss the release of the Arizona Fall League schedules and provide in-person reports on Mets prospect Alex Ramirez, Cubs prospect Ben Brown, Orioles prospects Heston Kjerstad, Max Wagner, and Judd Fabian, Reds prospects Christian Encarnacion Strand and Reese Hines, Yankees prospect Clayton Beater, Braves prospect Justin Henry Malloy, and Rays prospect Brett Wisely. The Eyes Have It and all the other items I've talked about today are only a few of the literally dozens of great articles, reports, and commentaries you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in the big hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, we have tools like player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up, 
You get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at St. Louis outfielder Jordan Walker is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's a physically mature player who has plus raw power and his all-around game is at a new level according to Baseball HQ's 2022 Minor League Baseball Analyst. Finishing the double-A season playing 119 games with 461 at-bats, 20-year-old St. Louis Cardinals third baseman Jordan Walker batted 306 with 19 home runs and 22 steals. But perhaps for Walker, that's only the beginning. The six-foot-five masher has already showed elite exit velocities, according to MLB Pipeline's 2022 prospect rankings, where Walker is currently ranked sixth overall. MLB Pipeline further pointed out that Walker maxed out at 116.2 miles per hour in low A Southeast in 2021, a similar max to Juan Soto, Fernando Tatis Jr., and Javier Baez, among others, in 2021. Walker was even mentioned, as you may recall, on last week's HQ Radio by RotoWire's lead prospect analyst and Sirius XM radio personality, James Anderson, who currently has Walker ranked number three on his top 400 list. In fact, Walker finished as the runner-up to Corbin Carroll for USA Today's 2022 Minor League Player of the Year announced on September 22nd. Worth noting, Corbin Carroll was our frequent flyer for the May 20th edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Additionally, worth noting, like Carroll, Walker is also polishing his outfield skills. Nevertheless, despite his 388 on on-base percentage at AA in 2022, Walker did strike out 116 times in 119 games. That's why 20-year-old St. Louis Cardinals third baseman Jordan Walker, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer in 2023 if he is still available in your Dynasty League. Profiled on the May 27th edition of Baseball HQ's The Eyes Have It podcast, episode 27, our own Chris Blessing pointed out that Walker's toe-tap timing mechanism could be a potential problem with Walker's swing, but also lauded Walker's contact this year. Indeed, a closer look shows that Walker's 74% contact rate in 2022 still fits within our targeted 70% plus range, but remains well below our elite 80% range so certainly there's room for growth. However, quoting MLB.com's September 22nd article naming the top Arizona Fall League prospects for each club, not only is Walker the highest-ranked Cardinal heading to Arizona, he's also the highest-ranked prospect, period. And that's why we invite you to join us at Baseball HQ's First Pitch Arizona November 3rd through the 6th to perhaps see the highest-ranked prospect, period. 20-year-old St. Louis Cardinals third baseman, Jordan Walker, live as our frequent flyer for this week and for the Arizona Fall League. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. 
Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week I'd like to talk about the 2022 and 2023 seasons for Baseball HQ Radio. We're wrapping up our 17th season of the podcast, and in some ways I thought this might have been our best season ever. We had 37 shows that added up to 73 hours, 40 minutes, and 15 seconds of podcast goodness, and that's not counting today's show. 32 of our podcasts featured guest experts, not counting Ray Murphy and Todd Zola in our roundtables. Our first guest expert of the year was Baseball HQ's own Ryan Bloomfield way back on February 25th. And our last, of course, was Paul Sporer on this edition. In between, Todd was our leading expert, appearing on five shows. Second place was Mike Gianella, who appeared today, and his appearance was his third of the season. We had several two-timers, Ariel Cohen from Fangraphs and Beat the Shift podcast and the developer of the ATC projection system, Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist here at BaseballHQ.com, the great Gene McCaffrey from The Athletic, James Anderson from Rotowire, Jason Collette from Rotowire and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast, Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports, and Steve Gardner from USA Today. Great experts all, fun to talk with, terrific stuff. We also had 10 more experts who have been on the pod in past seasons and appeared once apiece this year. Derek Carty was here from the Bat-X Projection System. Jeff Erickson, always a pleasure, from Rotowire. Rudy Gamble from Raz Slam, a lot of fun talking to Rudy. Paul Sporer on today's show from Rotographs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Peter Kreutzer earlier in the year from Tout Wars, the Fantasy Baseball Guide, Ask Rotoman, and Patton and Company. We had a couple of Canadian guys, always glad to say that. Tim McLeod from Prospect 361, always good to talk with Tim about prospects and especially about Japanese and Korean baseball. And Fred Zinke from Yahoo Sports and Rotowire. Fred's a great analyst and a terrific fantasy baseball player. We also had three more baseball HQers, Chris Blessing, Ryan Bloomfield, as I mentioned, and Tanner Smith. And better still, we got fresh new insights from six first-time guest experts. Carlos Marcano from Baseball Prospectus, Ian Kahn from The Athletic. Boy, that was a lot of fun. Uh, Joe Orico from SportsEthos.com and the Fantasy MLB Today podcast. Uh, Joe's a Canadian as well, so that's good. Rob DiPietro, who hosts the Pull Hitter podcast. That was a terrific pod. You remember, Rob? Rob talked about the draft that he had held with 11 of his closest friends, an actual draft champions league that they're going to run on the NFBC platform next year. Tanner Bell joined us from smartfantasybaseball.com. He's also the co-author with Jeff Zimmerman of The Process, a very comprehensive practical guide to fantasy baseball strategy. And that was a really interesting conversation. Got a lot of good feedback on Twitter from that one. And we had Toby Guerin from the Bat Flip Crazy podcast. Toby was a lot of fun to talk to as well. And we had a bit of a first, our first regular guy to appear on Baseball HQ Radio. Woody Govan won his appearance on our pod as a prize by donating to charity during Justin Mason's Potapalooza Potathon on the July 23rd weekend. Woody and I talked about his background in fantasy, some of his strategies, how much he loved First Pitch Arizona, where we actually had met back in 2021, and some other stuff. And, oh, Woody's another Canadian guy from New Brunswick in our maritime provinces up here. 
I actually lived in New Brunswick briefly when I was serving in the Canadian military, so Woody and I have that in common, and he also gave me the gears a bit about being two spots ahead of me at the time in the overall race at the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational. And I have, in all fairness, to report that Woody has greatly extended his lead over me. He's now almost into the top 100, while I'm a few spots from falling into the 200s. So thanks to Woody and all the other special guests for making the show what it is. Of course, I also have to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com. Harold Nichols, great fun to talk with every week about the National League. Ray Murphy makes me laugh every time he comes on, and he's a fountain of important information about the American League. And Alex Becky unearthed all kinds of invaluable potential difference-maker free agents in his weekly Frequent Flyers commentary. I hope you were listening to that one, because Alex sure came up with some good players to acquire. And I have to give a shout-out to somebody you probably never think about, Mike Krebs, the tech guy behind the scenes across BaseballHQ.com. Mike kept the gears turning this year for Baseball HQ Radio, including managing a late-season transition to a completely new platform. Taking dozens of anxious texts from Ray and from me as we got the kinks worked out and got the pod out to you without too many glitches. And all of the glitches were my fault. We also extended the pod to all the major pod getters like Stitcher and Spotify and Google Pods, which was something we had been working on for a few years. So in all, I'm going to say 2022 was a pretty terrific year for Baseball HQ Radio, and I'm grateful to all the people who contributed, and of course, to you who listened. Now let's take a quick look ahead to 2023. Now that we've updated and upgraded the technology infrastructure, I'm going to overhaul the organizational stuff. I have an Excel spreadsheet that is finishing its 11th year of service, and by now it's pretty covered in duct tape and bailing wire and the odd boot print where I had to kick it into submission. It has 20 tabbed and interconnected worksheets with more than 60 named ranges. That's too much. The workbook creates the basic script for all the stuff between the main show elements, the introductions, the transitions, the promos, and the other glue that joins everything together. It also generates the written support content like the Twitter blurb, the items on the Baseball HQ site and in the forums, and the written notes that are attached to the pod for the pod getters. It all works, but it could be way smoother and it could break down a lot less, frankly, so that's going to be a priority for me this off-season. You won't see it, but you'll experience it, shall we say. I'll also be upgrading my recording infrastructure. I'll be retiring my trusty Zoom H5 multi-track digital recorder and using a new Zoom P4 podcaster recorder. The P4 adds a lot of improvements, including a direct connection by USB 3 to my production computer so I don't have to take out and put back in the H5's SD cards 10 times a show. I also have a new microphone. You're listening to it now. It's a Shure M58, replacing the M57 I've been using for the last couple of years. I also have a new ratcheted mic stand to simplify the current jury-rigged assembly that I've got with a floor stand for the mic and a long boom that has to be anchored down. It's a long story, but it's super cumbersome, and I'm going to fix that as well. On the content side, I'm going to look at a couple of changes. I'd like to have more frequent shows during the week and shorter shows. A few years ago, we tried uh, a deal where we had a show every Tuesday with an expert interview. We called it our Tuesday Tout or occasionally our Two Tout Tuesday edition. And then there was a show every Friday that was focused on the news and commentaries because we knew that fantasy managers were looking at the weekend and free agent moves and so forth. 
I'm also thinking of changing our Market Watch player news from National League and American League to pitchers and hitters. It feels to me like that's a change that would align us better to what fantasy managers need in player analysis as they consider their roster moves for the weekend. We could still subdivide pitchers and hitters into National League and American League if need be, but I'd also like to add a commentary or two from the great analysts at BaseballHQ.com. The Big Hurt would be a great standing item as successful roster management increasingly hinges on injury awareness and planning. I've always liked the Market Pulse coverage for its direct appeal to fantasy managers' needs. Maybe a weekly report on the next week's two-start pitchers and matchups would be a help. And even though we have our great prospects podcast, The Eyes Have It, I always liked when we also had our Minor League Minute segment. Maybe that could be revived with a basis in the HQ site's phenomenal daily call-ups report. It would be great to let listeners know about all the call-ups in a week who would be available for weekend fab bidding and maybe worth a fab bid or two. So let me know what you think. The best avenue is to email the show, baseballhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening to this year's HQ Radio Pods and for all your suggestions that came into our email and on Twitter, and I'm looking forward to providing more great fantasy baseball goodness in 2023. It'll be our 18th year, and I can't wait. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September 23rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 37 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season, our last show of the regular season. I also want to thank our guest experts for this Friday full doubleheader edition, Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus and Paul Sporer from Rotographs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Mike is someone who obviously thinks a lot about fantasy baseball and really writes very well in discussing his very interesting thoughts. And of course, as you heard, he's a delight to have on the podcast. And Paul Spore, what can you say? One of the most fun and interesting guys in a business full of fun and interesting guys. Lots of fun for us and great information anytime Paul appears on the podcast. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts or Pocket Cast, Google Pods, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners really help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. This is our last show of the regular season, but we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a special roundtable edition for the end of the season featuring Todd Zola from Masters Ball ESPN and Rotowire and Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. That's Todd Zola and Ray Murphy on our next roundtable edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again in a couple of weeks, and for now, so long. 
Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.